Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. You know, I was just looking, um, I'm redecorating my apartment just in case I'm like stuck in here for winter. I mean, like Chicago winters, you're kind of stuck inside anyway, but I don't know. I don't trust what's going on in the world. I don't know what's going to happen come November. I just want to feel, I don't know, like I'm in a new space, even though I'm not. The problem is I have to move in April because they're going to sell our apartments, whatever, and we don't want to buy it. Long story short, I don't get on Pinterest a lot anymore, but I went, I have two Pinterest accounts. I went and dug into my old personal one (laughs) and was reminded of just like the magic of early 2010s mix and match fashion. Like when bloggers did not have money, it wasn't about statement designer pieces. It was just about like using the money you had from your entry-level job to buy stuff from like J. Crew, Zara, Forever 21, Banana Republic. Wearing a statement necklace that would put Countess Luanne de Lesseps to shame. Inviting roughly 12 guests, and by guests I mean bangles, to your arm party. Calling it a day. The innovation in these headlines, high to low, day to night. Chambray five ways. You guys know I love this stuff, and I know I've talked about it before, but like, I don't know. I think going into like more of the depths of some of these posts and all the stuff I pinned, A, it's hilarious that like a Pinterest board, it's like your vision board kind of, right? Like this is my best case scenario. And like the fact that my best case scenario at one point was like a mid-rise green skinny jean is tough. But it's like you always want to look back on your younger self and be like, you're doing okay, pal. And I just want to be like, you're doing okay, pal. Save your money. You would pay somebody to take those green pants from you in 10 years, you know? There was a lot of pops of color happening long before Kristen Takeman. A lot of neutral or chambray tops or, you know, popped collar jean jackets uh, with the brightest maxi skirt you've ever seen. A sheer overlay over like a scandalous mid-thigh slip. Uh, remember those like sheer maxi skirts? I, I, I honestly thought like that was it. That was couture as we knew it. When Blair Eady of Atlantic Pacific... My probably my number one most pinned person next to Sydney from the Daybook. Um, now that I'm going back through my Pinterest, um, when Blair Edie would post a pop of color with a popped of color jean jacket. God, I, I, I pray somebody's leveraged that wordplay before. Um, I would pass out. I would run to my nearest Topshop.com with suffocating speed. And get that borderline neon purple maxi skirt that is the color I hope to one day find a geo tracker in. I, I would buy that so fast. I, I, she, she was and always will be the inspiration behind my arm parties of, of years past. And while there are fewer guests invited these days, you know, some over time just, you know, you grow tired. You grow apart from friendships. You grow apart from statement jewelry. Even though at one point... You know, <laughs> you showed up to parties like the Xena warrior princess that you are and Steve Madden, full shin gladiator sandals, like up to the knee. I mean, at, at a point, <laughs> at a point, some fashion trends, it's like it's a costume, right? You know, like I, I remember feeling so edgy, so high fashion. It only felt symmetrical to match the high volume of bangles on my wrists with a high volume of straps on my shins 
And I really thought, like, this look is classic. I will look back on this and feel good about it. I am Xena Warrior Princess showing up to a, a McFadden's. Unlike Xena's musket, I have a Moscato because I am refined and I drink wine. Uh, I didn't realize at the time. I was like, damn, wine is good. I was like, you're drinking. <laughs> it's like, it tastes like a melted ice cream cake. The Moscatos are so sweet. I later graduated to Sauv Blanc, don't worry, like the Kim Crawford that I am. But I was really all over the place in the 2010s. A little bit Xena, a little bit Xenon when I tried Space Buns, when everybody started going to music festivals. Had I ever been to one? God, no. But did I need to wear Space Buns to my friend's low-key 12-person housewarming party, followed by a party trolley, uh, wearing, you know, enough fringe and feathers to pass as... I don't know, Fifi, the feather duster <laughs> from Beauty and the Beast, Lumiere's girlfriend, in case you're not familiar. Uh, yeah, of course. I. It's like I wanted to live the life of these people without actually living the life of these people. And I just miss the days when like their style was uh, like in line with my budget. Like, I think they all got rich. But now you start a blog, you begin with the end in sight, you know what it can do. Back then, it was just kind of like a hobby, and people had other jobs and lives, and they did it out of the goodness of their own heart. Now they do it out of the goodness of the, you know, affiliate link, which I get. It makes sense. Like, you gotta, especially if this is your full-time job, you have to prioritize revenue-generating activities. I don't, I won't deny anyone their livelihood. You know, do I wish I was seeing more Zara because their website's got awful to navigate? Yeah, but apparently they don't have affiliate links anymore, but that's Okay. I definitely, you know, splurged on a few of the items because I feel like we went for mix and match affordable fashion, though I'd argue if you didn't catch J. Crew or Banana at a sale, uh, you know, it, it got a little pricey. Banana Republic is like misleadingly expensive sometimes and ill-fitting. I had a lot of stuff from there, though. And I also feel like, you know, times were tough when you found yourself at the, the J. Crew factory where they, like, make vaguely all the same clothes as the nice J. Crew, but, like, out of paper. The J. Crew factory is the premier place to go if you want a, you know, a canvas purse and an undesirable silhouette in a color that matches nothing you own. You know? It, it's got a lot of stripes and a lot of button-downs, like, that are pretty thin. But at the, like, at the J. Crew mall store, the shirts fit you like a human woman, but at the J. Crew factory, I'm pretty sure their fit model is just like a like a square, just like the shape. Like they had a cardboard square and they were like perfect. Actually, maybe like a parallelogram because it's always a little off kilter too, stitching wise. <laughs> but no matter what, no matter the size, it, it doesn't matter big, small and any other area of your your torso without fail. There will be a gaping hole. In between the two buttons right in the chest area. So you can see just enough boob to make somebody incredibly uncomfortable. Because remember, we are responsible for other people's thoughts and stares. We mustn't make our Christian brothers stumble with our shirt gaps. Which brings me to my next point, the gap. Gap is very... It, like, it, is very, it is Burger King energy to me, you know? Like, it's America's backup plan. It's like a little bit more expensive than you remember for what it is. And when you have it, you're like, this is pretty good. But you're never like, I need to like a smoke show tonight. I'm going to go to the Gap. You know, they have less shirts and more what I would call smocks. And I just feel like unless you get to catch them at a really good sale time, it's just the, the clothes are kind of unreasonably expensive. In your head, they're cheap. But honestly, Gap, Banana J. Crew, unless you get them at their sales, which are I mean pretty much weekly, 
the, the items are almost like inflated on purpose, you know, based on how many sales they have. There's no reason somebody should pay $175 for a khaki cargo jacket at the Gap. It's like, I get it. You're, that, that is a, a tissue-thin V-neck t-shirt in every color of the, the pastel rainbow. Well, it does sport a tiny, tiny pocket in the upper left chest area. I do not think that's enough additional fabric to warrant a price point at like two for 50, you know? It just always felt like a bit of a ripoff, if I'm honest. And if I, you know, I don't like it's you don't go. The rule number one of the mall is you don't leave the mall without buying something. And when I kind of graduated from the low price point of an under $5 Bath and Body Works, you know, cucumber melon hand sanitizer with those tiny beads that definitely contribute to destroying the planet. Um, when I had a little more cash, I would always try to go to the gap thinking like I can get like a basic here. I can, I can find something. And typically I'd walk away with like an accessory that's just like literal garbage to them to the point where it's like shoved in a basket on the shelf of the sales section, like a headband, you know, a tiny scarf. I'd get a lot of like uh, shoes for the Gap's shoes are always so cheap because they rub your foot raw like a chicken cutlet. Like it just they're just so uncomfortable. Last thing I'll say about Gap and I swear I'll stop. <laughs> if you know anybody who has bought and wears often like it's, it's a favorite top of theirs. It's a desirable shirt that has bought a shirt that just says Gap. G-A-P on it, or just says 1969 on it, or just says Old Navy on it with an American flag. Do you guys know people that sport the branded shirts that are always front and center of these affordable-ish stores that aren't necessarily brands that I would wear loud and proud? Not because I don't want people to know my shirt is from The Gap. It's just like, if I'm going to wear a shirt from The Gap, I don't need it to say Gap on the front. I'd like rather it be plain. You know what I mean? I, I don't know how much of a status symbol just a big old GAP is on the front of a shirt, but they've been going strong for who knows how long. Actually, I do know how long because they all say established 1969 underneath it, as if that is information anybody cares about. Not only did we make a landing that was lunar, Gap started a trend that could not have ended sooner uh, because they are the owner proprietor of khakis i feel like they they are the, it's their fault for making khakis happen and i probably like dockers actually um but it is kind of funny because if you like asked me the years of like the cold war i'd be like eh, not sure but i have a hot take for you abercrombie fitch was founded in 1892 why do i like i know when all these clothing brands <laughs> were established because they plaster it everywhere anyway you guys that's not what we're talking about today what are we talking about today thanks for letting me just escape uh, into the glory of <laughs> Pinterest and mall stores. Today we're going to talk about a few different things. I thought maybe I'd group some of the recent crowds, crowdsource stories into a broader theme, especially because last week I had an email exchange with like a podcast ad broker that if I don't know, it's one. It's like kind of like wrong day, wrong gal, and not that I would justify it at any time. But you know, sometimes you're more willing to roll your eyes at an email, and sometimes you're like obsessing over like justice and principle. <laughs> I think the whole SCOTUS conversation has me like scared for women at times, and I just want to like. I think some days I'm like, no, we must fight the good fight. 
But anyway, I don't know if I've ever done like a workish themed um, episode. Honestly, who knows at this point? But can I go back to mall stores really fast before we get into serious stuff? Because the big, one of the biggest reasons I was so obsessed with that, like the whole 2010s vibe, vibes of fashion, is because I, Catherine Kennedy, thrive in business casual attire. <laughs> It was roughly 2010 when I found boyfriend blazers, slightly oversized, strong shoulder, a little longer than usual, that are adequately paired with a skinny pant, a black denim, so a, a regular denim on Fridays. I, I, I never looked back. I, when I started working, we had to wear business casual clothing. Like I owned creased trousers. I do not own creased trousers anymore. But back then I was like making it rain at the New York and company. And I loved it uh, when I I wasn't like as fond of baby dolls and like playing house like my sister always wanted to like hold and play with babies but I I loved playing office I loved playing newscaster um I, I think I played secretary one too many times and I look forward to now you know encouraging my child to uh play administrative assistant because that's a better term I just, I always wanted to be like a businesswoman, and I remember being inside of a limited two and telling my friend Elise that I couldn't wait to get out of the age where we were wearing limited too, so I could go over to the limited and wear a slack. I wanted to carry a briefcase. Uh, clearly, I'd only seen businessmen on TV, and I just wanted to wear what they were wearing. Uh, a structured shoulder works for me. A skinny pant works for me. I mean, you know, I, I, I can be wild and fun sometimes, but I do feel like the best version of myself if my arms are covered, and I do thrive in an environment that I have to default to a sensible sweater or a blazer because of threats of cold air conditioning. Um, I, I, for, forget Donna Karen, in New York. I've got, I've got the shapeless silhouettes of Jones, New York. <laughs> Somebody give me a Benadryl. In case I have a Kenneth Cole reaction, okay? And I don't say oh, okay as in okay. I say it as an MK to represent the Gucci-like print of Michael Kors Diffusion line, which is what my purse was stamped with. And it looked like a repeating KMK, which are my initials. So basically, it was like I had a custom designer handbag at the affordable price point of $59.99. And like every sensible New Yorker who wants to guard their belongings on a subway, it had no zipper, a flimsy hook to go in the middle of the tote. And you could reach into it and grab literally everything I own at any given time, but that's okay. It was fierce as hell. I... It's just funny what we feel comfortable in because like I, I was a lot preppier and wore a lot of polos and Lily and I don't know. I, I definitely like tried to dress like other people um, when I was like in high school and college. And I still I actually love very feminine clothing, but I don't like floor. I don't know. It's hard to explain. I'm I'm just specific about the type of clothing I feel good in and I was in denial about for a long time. And like I and there's just certain silhouettes that don't make me feel like myself. Like I had a hell of a time wedding dress shopping because it's just like I don't wear white and I don't wear any of those silhouettes and I don't wear lace. And so I'm supposed to look like the best version of myself in a category of dresses and a style I would never actually choose if I was going to pick the best dress I'd ever seen. It's a little strange. So like, yeah, maybe I look like garbage in a wedding dress, but I look sharper than a fresh Ticonderoga in business casual. A little less, a little less Kleinfeld, a little more Anne Klein, you know, or Calvin Klein. Long before the Kardashians posed in a Canadian tuxedo and an Amish quilt inside of a barn piled on top of each other, I was sporting his work dresses from the professional section of Marshalls, where you are given a skinny 
plastic, god-awful quality with really evident stitching that just really, you're better off with a zip tie um, around like a hound's tooth dress with two like little uh, string loops on either side that really I could do without and are designed to hold it in place at the waist. And, you know, even though it's not my ideal, I went with it because... I like I like to feel feminine but powerful. I don't like I don't I don't know. I'm just not as good with like frilly, but I love like a structured biz cash work dress. I love a pencil skirt and a button down. I love Andy Anderson how to girls Luke at the beginning of How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days with a khaki pencil skirt and the white Oxford shirt. Oh my god, I loved her fashion. Honestly, I think I modeled my life after that. I thought she was so funny, so clever, so stylish. <laughs> And she wanted to write about what matters, but her editor would not let her. Friggin' Lana. She looked like a ghoul. She had stepped the boss and not only is pandering to difficult stereotypes of women bosses, when we all should be modeling our bosses on television after Melora Hardin's character in The Bold Type, even that show, though that show is riddled with cliches, stereotypes, and uh, borderline pathetic attempts at blatant wokeness, um, the character of Jan from The Office, Melora Hardin, I'm forgetting her name, in The Bold Type, is outstanding. She's thoughtful. She's driven. She's kind of a hard ass when she needs to be, but she's so fiercely feminine. She's deeply understanding of her em employees' needs and trusts them to rise to the occasion of who she knows they can be. And they are innocent until proven guilty. She is a boss that is able to get things done without being a jerk. And she prioritizes mentorship over intimidation and leadership. Uh, she is poised. She is tough. She is reasonable. She is empathetic, she is caring, she is visionary, but she gets shit done. And while The Bold Type and Younger are virtually the same show, and I did try to make a Venn diagram, and really, the, there's there very many things in the middle, from Sutton Foster being the star of one to a character named Sutton. Well, I couldn't figure out if Younger also had a weird episode where one of the characters had a cash under-the-radar under gun hobby. Um... I still think I like the bold type better, even though Younger's less, maybe sometimes less cheesy and better made. I'm more endeared of the characters of the bold type. Anyway, we don't need to get into it. And I honestly couldn't even extract anything meaningful from my Venn diagram of the bold type and Younger. But it's just there's this funny, these tropes that make a standard New Yorky working in an industry that will pay you peanuts uh, shows that glamorize something that actually would be awful but one of the big reasons the bold type comes out on top is because um the female boss in younger is just a classic example of like a demandy bitchy person you don't respect but who's you know you heal to their commands because you don't have a choice you're paying your dues and you don't like respect her whatsoever i'd argue you know could she be that type of person and then the character's just like let her be that way and not take it personally or hate her or talk about her all the time. Like, yeah, but no, some shows don't really elevate to the, to this level and, and that's okay. That is their decision. Anyway, you guys, <laughs> um, I just think about moments in fashion that I'm just grateful for. And, and my conversion to biz cash was one and I never dress in it anymore, but the early 2010s was kind of my heyday. And then that's when I would get really wild with things like blanket scarves it was kind of a big deal when I stopped tunicking and layering and started tucking things into pants. Like, that was nuts. It's hard for somebody to do who's kind of torso-less. Um, I just, like, there's so many things I'm grateful for in fashion that have transitioned in my favor. And I really fear the day we go back. Because, like, high school and college, if you were dressing up and wearing, like, a classic going-out top, be a halter top, sky top, tube top, you know, something with aggressive ruching, 
you were wearing pumps. You were wearing peep toe pumps, patent leather pumps, pointy toe pumps. I just hate how a flared jean looks with a pump. I can get into a pump with a, a skinny jean, and I did, and I sometimes. But what became far more popular were boots and flats. But then ballet flats even turned to more of a loafer or sneaker or structured shoe. And then we went from low to high waist. We went from flares or trousers to a skinny pant. The fashion has taken some really positive turns in recent years, and I'd really like for it to stay this way. I'm interested to see if this comes full circle because now workplaces are so casual. I think three or four years into my corporate job, they started the let, letting you wear jeans. And that's like a slippery slope where then you just kind of, it's hard for you to show up to work, like not dress kind of, <laughs> you know, it, it's more, I almost prefer to stricter dress code. Not because I, I, I can't decide. The stricter dress code made me like pick out my clothes the night before, maybe put a lot of thought into what I wore. It made me like overall a little bit more polished, which I think can affect my attitude. And I'm a person that loves to dress up and I don't really feel like myself in sweats but as I've gotten older my style has definitely gotten a lot more casual and like low-key and less structured but hopefully we won't go back to Mad Men era vibes even though I'm here for the side parts hopefully we're leaning more into Mad Woman vibes which is you know what, what I'm going to channel today at times sometimes lighthearted, sometimes not I mean no one likes a mad woman but you made her like that and when you call me crazy I get more crazy how about that <laughs> Which leads me to my next point. First, I want to thank one of our advertisers this week. It's legitimately an honor and a privilege to work with them. And I want to actually talk about a product that's very much in alignment with what we're talking about today. And this product is Boybrow, and the company is Glossier. Kate Bosworth and Blue Crush is quaking because Glossier, their skincare, their makeup products, their body care products, their fragrances make you glow from within. The, the, the company kind of the origin is to make your natural beauty shine and to not uh, be a product designed to cover more so in a, pro a product to accentuate which I really honestly appreciate I every I try every time we do ads I try to tell you about different products and I know I focus a lot on the dewy glowy uh, products and skincare that I love so much but today I just want to tell you boy brow um <sighs> It's it's their best-selling grooming pomade. It gives you instantly fluffy full brows. And you know how everywhere you're seeing people with like these amazingly fluffy, thick brows that just seem like they're not penciled on in a harsh way, but they seem like natural and just like not overgrown, but like all of a sudden people are all over the nation are turning their sperm brows back into a fully functional adult eyebrows. <laughs> I shaved mine off in my youth and I've been regretting it ever since, but... This brow product, regardless of the state of your natural eyebrows, gives you almost that like laminated tinted look uh, by providing a pomade for instantly fluffy and full brows. It comes in blonde, brown, black, auburn, which is new and clear, which doesn't leave a trace. And it's a brushable, creamy formula that visibly thickens and shapes your brows into place. It's a kind of a small portable product with a ton of product in it, but it's, it's very portable so you can take it anywhere. And it's dermatologist, ophthalmologist tested, appropriate for all skin types, formulated without fragrance or alcohol. It's cruelty free, which we love. It honestly is a bestseller of more than 3 million products sold for a reason. And like I said, it's inspired by traditional men's mustache wax, which is really trying to give a soft, flexible hold that doesn't stiffen, it doesn't flake, it doesn't feel crunchy, but it holds your eyebrows into place in that fluffy manner that we love. And I don't know if I'm, I hope I'm describing it correctly, but anyways. 
I'll show you on Instagram. I really love this product. Glossy has a million things, but I'm focusing on boy brow today because of the conversation at hand. But you can get boy brow by visiting glossier.com slash podcast slash be there in five. All new customers will get 10% off their first order on glossier.com slash podcast slash be there in five. Certain exclusions do apply, but that's G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R.com slash podcast slash be there in five. 10% off you guys. Go try boy brow. Thank me later. I'll show you on Instagram this week. Look at my highlights. Love you. But anyway, I don't know if I've ever done like a workish themed um, podcast. You know, I always talk about vague marketing jobs and how when I was a kid, I like thought I want to be in, you know, astronaut, doctor, lawyer, teacher, whatever. Actually, I did not. I didn't want to be any other. I think I wanted to be like a newscaster, a fashion designer. But what I didn't know existed are like these random business jobs. I call them vague marketing jobs, but I think that they exist in a lot of the corporate world, especially among B2B companies, because there's the world of brands and businesses you see that are business to consumer. But behind the scenes are all these vendors, data providers, you know, manufacturers, consultants, data products, operational software cloud storage and server solutions like who the hell knows there's so many random things that go into making businesses run and um i think until you graduate college or you start going to career fairs you don't realize you can get paid decently well to be in a role that is virtually undetectable to the rest of the world like you wouldn't know to apply for that job you wouldn't know what that job does it's kind of hard to explain the job and people are always like what do you do again uh but at the end of the day you like don't hate it and you kind of like it and you feel like you've kind of fell into the job or at least into the field because you're able to achieve work-life balance get paid pretty well do something that's not important enough that if you're off something like goes crashing down um, and all the while you're like, wow, why wasn't I working specifically toward this type of role in this industry? Why did I think my career options were like limited to that of elementary school career day or like Barbie? What were Barbie's jobs? So if you go to list of Barbie's jobs, she's done it all from aerobics instructor, yoga teacher, music teacher, tennis and volleyball coach, elementary school teacher. She's been a dentist, eye doctor, nurse, surgeon, veterinarian, paramedic. She's been in the army. She's been in the air force. She was a paratrooper in the, th in the Thunderbirds, not the Danny Zuko Thunderbirds, like the United States Air Force Thunderbirds, just to clarify. Uh, United States Marine Corps, a Navy petty officer. She was a chancellor. Uh, that's only available in Germany, obviously. A presidential candidate, a UNICEF inv ambassador, or Meghan Markle vibes, a firefighter, a lifeguard, a mail carrier, a judge, a park ranger, an architect, astronaut, astrophysicist, computer engineer, geologist, game developer, robotics engineer, paleontologist, Ross Gellermuch, polar marine biologist, the SeaWorld, oh, problematic, cancel Barbie, uh, pilot, flight attendant, NASCAR, stewardess, okay, are we still calling them that? Um, ballerina, chef, designer, fashion model, film director, Guest editor of an international fashion magazine. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's specific. Makeup artist, Olympic athlete, pet stylist, producer, rapper. Okie doke. Interested to see that. Um, rock star singer, TV chef, different from regular chef, wedding stylist, musician, whatever. Okay. And in sports, like literally has done every single sports ever. She's even been a cowgirl, an animal rescuer, a bar, uh, a mermaid, a beekeeper. A uh, wildlife conservationist, a cat burglar. I don't even know you guys. Okay. Well, when we go to the business category, 
Think of all those things I just said. Um, This is the list of business jobs Barbie has had. Business executive, little vague. Owner of a cafe. Secretary, again, administrative assistant. A cashier at Seize Candy. A waitress. I prefer server. Resort greeter. Greeter. (laughs) News reporter, great. Chicken farmer. Banker. Cashier. Two cashiers. Hairstylist. McDonald's cashier. News anchor again. Soda fountain waitress. Babysitter. Pet groomer. Coffee shop worker. Noodle bar worker. Okay. That is the business category. We need Barbie to be an account executive. We need Barbie to be a marketing coordinator. Perhaps Barbie needs this the most because her job titles didn't endure this process. Barbie should be in quality assurance. Maybe she wants to be a communication strategist. Maybe she wants to reach for Lestars and go for an associate uh, manager. Associate director, even. My God, can you imagine a VP, an SVP, an EVP, a C-level? Barbie may have gone to SeaWorld, but that is not the type of C-level we want to see her in. Perhaps she wants to be an you know, operations technician, a, a customer integration specialist, a, a product implementation planner, a, a data strategist, a, a, a brand analyst, perhaps a, a brand manager. My God, it's like forget a regular architect. Why build skyscrapers when you can build solutions? I don't know why he said reach for the stars when this whole time Barbie could have been reaching for the cloud. And by that, I mean an enterprise implementation team of cloud-based solutions where Barbie could have a, a, a hand in driving the core KPIs of a system's development lifecycle. Like, wow. Can we just even talk about how funny job titles are? Like, uh, my job titles were client service executive, client solutions associate, account executive, Mm, then I think I was a director of advertiser solutions (laughs) or director of marketing effectiveness. And then I was a black belt, which is just really confusing to people. And now I just am whatever I want to call myself. But like there, there is no way to look at a job title. It's like, what do you do? And it's like, I am, I don't know, brand strategist or whatever. Actually, that's kind of self-explanatory, but like, even anything with solutions, I, all of our jobs always had solutions in it. It's like, what What are you solving? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, what do you actually do? How, how are we supposed to make these, you know, linear and lateral moves to transverse industries to get experience, uh, to know where to best optimize our gifts in this corporate world where they belong when we can't even know what people do based on these job titles and every job listing online is the exact exact same damn thing. And it's like, I can write emails and do PowerPoints and like coordinate a schedule and like get shit done because everybody can figure out anything really in the, I think in the entry to mid-level business world. Yet you're coming down on me for like my lack of project manager experience. I'm like, I can manage projects. What else do you want from me? Not trying to be a CPA. I, I just, you know, some of these jobs with the, their certifications, I understand sometimes they're important, but sometimes it's a lot of fluff. And I've been through a a lot of certification type classes and I'm just like what am I doing why am I here um I, what's a CPA Stanford certified public accountant you know what's perhaps the worst part is I when I hear the word certified now I'm like sorry sir I'm not a certified public accountant but certified freak seven days a week I mean 
What a gift that song was to women everywhere this summer. I love Megan Thee Stallion. I, Cardi B is great too, but like when Megan Thee Stallion comes in on WAP, her cadence and style is just, oh my God, it's perfection. She just, I really think she anchors the song incredibly. And like, I think Cardi has the court hero like lyrics, but Megan delivers them better. And there's things that you, when you think about it, you're like, oh, it's funny. You know, switch my wig, make him feel like he's cheating. It's like, yes. <laughs> I love that song so much. I think we all do. Did you guys know that Megan Thee Stallion had to sue her own label earlier this year? Um, because she's in a garbage record deal. Like not t like Taylor's. Have I talked about this before? Like Taylor Swift's record deal was actually quite. It wasn't a problem when she was in it. The problem was the renewal and the nature of record, like how historically record deals work. As um, the label owns the masters, and that isn't Taylor fighting. That isn't that like unusual. Um, and most artists just like don't really fight it. But I also think a lot of artists aren't as don't have as heavy of a hand in involvement in the writing and production of their own music. But what happens more often than not is people get in really long contracts. People get in contracts when they're really young and experienced. They have no leverage and agree to stuff that when they ultimately get famous, they're getting taken advantage of like almost unconscionably. And um, like, for example, Megan heard label 1501 didn't want them, her to put out music. And she said, all I did was ask to renegotiate my contract. Then it became a whole big thing. When I signed, I didn't know what it was in my contract. I was young. I was like 20. I didn't know everything that was in my contract. So when I got with Rock Nation, basically when she got real management and ba real lawyers, they were like, do you have any idea what's in here? And she had, she had no idea. And this happens often. Um, like at the beginning of your career, like you can't afford to have like some super experienced lawyer combing through this stuff. And um, she signed in 2018. Her first project that was Tina Snow. She was given a signing bonus of $10,000 as an advance toward future earnings. The royalty split between 1501 Entertainment, the label, and Megan is 60-40. 60 being the label. And all recording costs are seen as advances fully deductible off the top prior to the distri distribution of royalties. So once... Megan's advance, only the $10,000, was recouped in full uh, post-release. Then she would begin to receive 40% of future earnings. And then the affiliated publishing company with the label was provided with an undivided 50% interest in the worldwide copyright and was deemed the exclusive administrator of Megan's music. So they basically also receive like a net amount of money from a variety of her other business ventures and then pay her out after a separate accounting. So 1501 Entertainment in the contract is given 30% of almost all of Megan's sources of income, including merchandising, sponsorships, endorsements, every live performance, concerts, clubs, show, hosting tours. They have the sole exclusive rights to use her name legally and professionally, approve her, her likeness, approve picture, approve portrait in any manner whatsoever and in perpetuity. Um, the company also was given all given contract approval over all of Megan's appearances and live performances, along with needing to mutually agree on tour participants and the revenue split for any artist Megan wanted to tour with outside of their own roster. If she wanted to engage in side artist engagement, 1501 received a 30% commission and services above $1,000 after approval and permission to move forward. They're also entitled to a royalty of 30% of artists net royalty receipts deriving from the exploitation of artist services in connection with all entertainment related endeavors, meaning her all of her appearances in other mediums like motion pictures, television, nonfiction books, magazines, video games, and more have no affiliation with the label. Although the label made sure to stipulate that it wasn't a talent agency and under no obligation to procure employment for Megan. And that's an agency set up without 
the agency infrastructure or agency benefit to develop business for you. They just take money, but they don't have to do anything to procure that employment. It, it's horrible. Um, basically, any professional who's weighed, on, weighed in on this has said taking 30% of these ancillary income streams is a massive overreach. And yeah, it absolutely is. For an agent, you would give 10%. A manager, typically 10, 15%. And she probably already has those people outside of this. And for the label to be taking not only the cut of her music and to take majority of any income she receives from the music period, but to have a hand in all these ancillary activities is just like, it, I, it just, it's messed up. And it's like, it's just such an exploitation of a person that they probably recognize had a lot of talent and probably would get somewhere and locked her into a contract when she had no other options. And like, on the one hand, I understand with business and I'm the one here arguing for like what you're worth. But I do think that there comes a time, especially in artistic mediums where people try to take advantage of you. Um, and I mean, and I've talked about publishing before, like to me, it's crazy that I spent all this time and money, uh, you know, writing my own book, I brought in the illustrator, it took like a year to finalize and tweak all these things of what's like 32 pages. It's like my brain on a platter distributed to the world, yet I only get 15% of it because that's how publishing works. They're like, if we're going to give you your shot, you only get a small percentage of this and we deserve all of it when like, I mean, I, I could go in on publishing when they don't do anything. They do nothing. They do nothing. Um, and they rely on the writer for all marketing muscle and like publishing is just like such a freaking nightmare anyways i'll get i need to get into that someday um i did not have a positive experience anyway guys uh oh so basically the reason this is so unethical and wrong is if it's if you want a percentage of revenue that's fine but you have to be a participant in those businesses you have to procure the business manage it help with execution whatever like it's normal to take a cut of something that you bring value to and that without that you are almost indispensable to, right? Anyway, long story short, her penultimate project, second to last, that was supposed to come out with 1501 Entertainment, this garbage label that's like not a real label that's just taking all of her money. And um, also people take advantage of people that don't know anything. Uh, hence the email exchange I had with Fred last week that I'll get into. If you follow me on Instagram, you know. Uh, where people use your inexperience to belittle you and make you uh, concede and assume that the other person knows better than you, so you'll agree with them, and it's almost a negotiating tactic. Long story short, 1501 Entertainment, this garbage label, tried to block her penultimate uh, album because she had a, has a four-project contract with 1501. Um, they stopped, try, tried to stop her music from being released, which she wanted to release on her mom's birthday, who had passed away the year before. The court ultimately decided that they would prevent 1501 Entertainment from preventing the release, distribution, and sale of Megan's new records scheduled for release on March 6, 2020. They ordered the label to refrain from threatening or posting any threatening or retaliatory social media posts against Megan Thee Stallion. And Megan's statement was, I'm extremely pleased that 1501 was denied the request to dissolve the court order and try to stop my music from being released. I will proceed with the release of Suga on Friday, May Friday, March 6. To be clear, I will stand up for myself and I won't allow two men to bully me. That, my friends, is real hot girl shit. Yes, Megan. I'm, I just, I'm like so impressed by her. What would, what would like quarantine have been without that savage dance? But they think about too, I mean, she had 
Savage, Savage Remix with Beyonce, Hot Girl Summer, Captain Hook, Girls in the Hood, like all of the best songs of the past, what, like 18 months probably. You know I'm here for a female rapper. You know I'm here for somebody who's lyrically lyrically dexterous. And I think she's talented and is going to have a huge career. And it kills me to think that she's getting so little of that income. And I'm glad the court sided with her. These, This is the type of precedent and example we need set. And I'm here for it. Anyway. Figured I'd just tell a quick interjected story of somebody who I think is a boss. And um, how did I get to talking about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was comparing a certified public accountant to a certified freak seven days a week. Ah, yes. Ladies, we can't have it all. <laughs> no, but I just kind of, I think that I laugh at job titles and laugh at how we don't have examples of them growing up. And then we all, a lot of us fall in these random corporate jobs and then your entire job is sending emails. Your entire job is being in meetings that are about other meetings. Your entire job is simply trying to explain basic principles of PowerPoint presentations to people whose lack of proficiency is truly shocking based on their job title and pay scale. We need the fonts and titles to be the same on every slide. We need the alignment to be the same on every slide. We need the weight to be the same on every slide. We also need a hierarchy of fonts that we use in our branding suite to go on a template we use that I don't want to convert your slides, your blank slides you sent me into because then it becomes a whole formatting issue. We need to start with the template. We need to follow the branding guidelines and we need to type in the places where it says type text here. Don't send me a blank slide without any text types in the text box and be like, sorry, I didn't think it was mine. I thought this was directed toward lorem ipsum. It's like, no, Gary, that's just filler text. I don't want to have to explain to you why I need the Word document version of your PDF in order to edit it. Unless you want me to go through hoops of you know editing PDFs back to a Word document, which can work, but sometimes can really upset the formatting. I've wasted hours, nay, days of my life watching people try to hook their computer up to a projector with an old-school HDMI cable. Maybe they need a dongle because they're lucky and their workplace has a Mac, but Macs, for some reason, the further they develop their products, the less functional they are, and you have to buy a dongle outside of the already super expensive computer to even have it function in a basic manner. <laughs> I mean, I know I've talked through before corporate icebreakers that I just love so much, and... uh I, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for jargon. I have my own jargon. I use the same metaphors all the time and speak in a, the same way. And I'm sure it's really annoying. I try to stick away from, oh, that's nice. Oh, you know, the boil the oceans of the world of the, sometimes I'll use 10,000 foot view, but you know, when people are like, we're going, you know, let's take this paradigm shift off uh, offline because there's some low hanging fruit here that we want to integrate because we feel like there's some synergy with the organization. But when you take a 10,000 foot view, it feels like we're boiling the ocean. I don't have the bandwidth to circle back. And you're like, what? <laughs> I, the, the, the usage of jargon is, is truly astounding. And um, I, I, for one, am a huge fan of people's word choice. And I do this all the time, too. But perhaps the most exciting of all the corporate communications is the what you can say without saying it in an email, some light email passive aggression. And I don't mean in a way that is meant to condescend needlessly or 
uh, call somebody out or make them feel bad for no reason. I mean, the way you respond to things politely when you want to be like, go F yourself. You know what I mean? Here's the difference. Then this is kind of what I wanted to get to in a moment, telling you my experience with Fred per the Instagram conversation I posted last week where, uh, you know, I was like furious about the super condescending email. I think that it's a this is a funny thing that women do and it's not funny at all but like we you know sometimes I'm like laugh at myself even though the underlying reason is like such a shame is like the amount of time we spend trying to soften our speech trying to not really say what we want to say but say it more politely so we're you know being firm but likable how I, I scan my emails and like put in strategic exclamation marks sometimes even a smiley face I'm really trying to stop doing that um just so you know people know that like yeah I'm asking for money and yeah I want you to do your job but like I'm a fun gal within reason I think that as much as I laugh about email passive aggressions that women send it speaks more than anything than like our desire to be snarky or snide or you know indirect there there truly is a likability trap that's well documented um that exists for women that I think I've read about in the New York Times first there's this um work work workplace scholar I think what I think they call her that workforce workplace scholar named Joan Williams. And she calls, uh, she calls this gender judo. And for example, talking about how venture capitalists are more likely to fund female led companies if they're framed as being about social good, because women help people, obviously, while women who use softeners in conversations about money are less likely to be perceived as crass or demanding. And um, Professor Williams, she did interviews and I'll I'll link to the articles in the show notes who said they um, would embrace like the stereotype of an office mom because women are like collaborative and nurturing. And you find you, you felt like you could be valuable if you were helpful around the office, like taking on, you know, m- administrative tasks that are outside the scope of your work or bringing in coffee or baking or whatever. And almost in like in a subconscious effort to offset the times that you're firm and um there's just this important thing for us to acknowledge in that we live with this fear that when we act in an authoritative manner, we were risking being unlikable. We were risking seeming like shrill or demanding or, or difficult. This is there's a real position out there. <laughs> These exist called likability coaches. <laughs> That's insane. That we have to have this, we have to do these like verbal, semantic, punctuation related gymnastics to strike a balance between, you know, being firm and authoritative without being bossy, but in being nice without being too nice where we're taken advantage of. Or like this article says, without having your competence questioned. I work overtime grooming my emails and words for for breeziness about things I don't feel breezy toward at all. But I feel like if I'm aggressive about something, it will compromise the message or the message will get lost in the delivery, if you will. And it's funny because I've even given this advice on the podcast, but I'm kind of like rethinking it lately because Cheryl Sandberg says, sorry, my HVAC, um, 
the best advice she ever got was to be relentlessly pleasant in, in a negotiation because people won't expect it. And if you get worked up, it can and will be held against you. And I've used that and it's been helpful almost to like be a little bit out of body. But I think that lately I've been a little frustrated with tactics and methodologies that don't correct for the sexism <laughs> but work around it and I don't know if it's realistic and or or contributing to the problem if that makes sense anyway don't need to get into that right now and also I don't mean all men I don't mean all companies you know there's such a there's a thing that exists called a likability coach that female executives can hire and this is a real position to help them be authoritative yet likable as if those are opposing ideals would like and that that's what I mean when I generalize with men not that I'm targeting particular men but rather um, when you are in an environment where you're automatically given the benefit of the doubt you're not hiring a likability coach (laughs) they don't have to scan their emails seeing if like should I have an her smiley face do I do I have two exclamation points in a row that's like a little too cheery I want to seem upbeat and welcoming and warm but I want to also get my point across so let's make that one into a period let's have like maybe a semicolon there and merge those two clauses together is this too many commas are they going to think I'm too rambling but people tend to think women are rambly do I say regards kind regards warm regards no oh my god that's bitchy and shrill are you kidding me warm regards like go f yourself I'll just put I'll just put sincerely do I put hi is hey too casual do I put an exclamation part after their name should I introduce myself or is that redundant it. Oh, are they not going to read this because it's three full paragraphs? Oh, maybe I should put like a, you know, make a joke at the end about me being too demanding or bossy or me asking for too much. So at least I apologize in advance and can call out what they're thinking. So they at least know that, you know, maybe I, I'm difficult and asking for too much, but at the very least I'm self-aware. Hmm. Should I consider putting a pleasantry at the front? Should I ask them about their weekend or how their kid's doing? So at least I think I'll like, you know, I remember something about them. And when I'm asking them for the third time for the thing they told me they were going to provide me a long time ago, but are going to push back and tell me I wasn't clear about my instructions. Maybe if I ask about how the soccer game went, I won't be penalized for following up on something I have the right to follow up on, but being perceived as being nagging. You know, we, I think that you don't even realize, even though I'm exaggerating this, the origin of this internal monologue is so grounded and having to work around the unconscious biases people bring into the workplace and unconscious biases can exist in a myriad of ways they can be about your age your wealth your gender your race where you live whatever it is that that the whole point is that they're unconscious and they are often exercised without us even knowing and it's I mean when you read about the origin of biases it's like a product of evolution so stereotyping is like a human response to almost be able to understand our surroundings and our competition by synthesizing their behaviors into like a series set of like this is what this type of person vaguely represents and this is how they fit into like the context of my world socially competitively survivally and otherwise and so our brains actually have a predisposition to this type of bias but the point is is that you can quiet that you can mute it you can get rid of that but you have to actively exercise the muscle that thinks through what you're saying how it could be perceived where your assumptions are coming from and you have to exercise an extreme level of self-awareness to work around this the first part is to recognize that they exist and I know this conversation has been uh, prevalent more recently especially as it relates to racial biases and microaggressions and 
you know, the importance, like people say things saying they're like complimenting people, but it's incredibly rude, whether you're like, oh my gosh, you look so exotic. Where are you from? You know what I mean? Stuff like that. And or, or talking about somebody's hair or like being a little bit like, you know, that's such a fun hairstyle. That's different. Or like, you're so well spoken. Like, you, do you have to be mindful of compliments that suggest that your expectations were much lower than the reality of their delivery when there's no good reason for your expectations to be low and it's incredibly rude and condescending to be like actually wow like you know what I mean it's one thing if like people just typically underperform and somebody's like a rock star at something but it's a whole different thing and people can sense when you are basically trying to low-key insult them by suggesting you were hesitant and did not think they would perform to this level even though you have no background or experience or reason to think that it's these things are really important to be aware of in the workplace because I think that women exercise them toward women too white women toward women of color I think that it's not there's there aren't these dynamics don't just exist among women and men there's this funny thing that happens anymore where people don't let you focus without being collectively exhaustive it's kind of like the explaining black lives matter it's about focus not exclusion it's not about saying other people's don't we're just focusing on why this matters when you highlight a particular issue people are like but what about everyone else that doesn't do this and it's like that's not what we're talking about that's not the focus of this discussion and that's a what about just argument that's designed to do nothing but take away from the integrity of this conversation by pointing out that if you put have some perspective that this really isn't that big of a deal when nothing is a big deal if you compare it to other things in the grand scheme of life but that doesn't mean we don't focus on individual issues regardless of their size scale and relative importance and every like all you know even last week like on patreon there's a um a recording I did with a listener who's an ex-Mormon whose story I wanted to share. I've shared hours of other women's stories on purity culture of the own faith I grew up in. And but I've and I've talked about, you know, Mormon mommy bloggers, but I've never really shared the story of a listener on the other side of the spectrum. And of course, before even listening to it, I'm just bombarded with not all Mormons. Like it's not everybody. Not everybody did that. And I'm like, somebody's individual story has nothing to do with everyone else it's their story and their experience and again your positive experience doesn't take from somebody else's negative one a majority of positive experiences doesn't mean that the negative ones don't have the right to speak up and to rise to the top an organization while you have to accept a certain margin of error in certain ways when those things are about human rights about racism about sexism about abuse those things don't need to happen to the majority of people for you to care about them In fact, the only way to care about everything else you're excluding is to prevent the problematic behavior from spreading or being acceptable in a way where it ultimately does affect the majority. So even if there's a small set of people that are dealing with a particular issue, the size of that issue doesn't mean you ignore it. It means you pay close attention to it so it doesn't get bigger. When you use the argument of not all you know not all men not all executives not all cops not all this not all that it's like yeah nobody's saying it's everybody nobody's saying 100% of the people that are affiliated with anything to do with this issue are guilty what it's saying is this is a real problem our positive perceptions of a particular group don't negate the negative firsthand experiences of people that are coming forth with a problem. And if we don't tackle this problem within this subset, this will only get worse. More people will suffer and we're actively co-signing that we think this is acceptable. Anyway, it's like, oh, it's one of those funny things where I'm like, 
you know, talking about my experiences having uncomfortable email exchanges with men. And when somebody's first reaction is like, not all men, I'm like, nobody said it was. But <laughs> this behavior is alive and well with some men. And I think it's a good idea to call attention to it. So we can kind of chip away at this so people in vulnerable situations aren't taken advantage of. There, it's, it's, it's a crazy world we live in where everybody thinks that everything that is said is a personal attack on them, and it's just not. It is just not. Anyways, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. How I, I equal parts laugh and lament the verbal gymnastics we endure when writing firm emails or responding to something that's so obvious, but instead of being direct and straightforward because we don't want to be bitchy, we code them with things like per my last email. I mean, literally, per my last email, you might as well say go play in traffic. Like, you you dumb bitch, you did not read what I just said. So I am referring kindly to my last email to reiterate the thing I already told you in the exact same words, but I just want to include per my last email. So instead of saying, I already told you this, I can just delicately, you know, address your poor attention span or inability to listen with corporate jargon. I love nothing more than for somebody to mess something up, point fingers, blame it elsewhere, act like they weren't prepared or I didn't do something, and then respond, not only referencing our previous correspondence that told them exactly what to do, I also like to lay out all of the most indisputable facts and then really, really get them where it hurts. Really just, you know, take that watermelon machete, <laughs> dig it in there, twist the knife. And you know how I do that? I use two words, going forward. It's really just captures the emotion I feel when somebody should have done something right the first time and when it wasn't that hard. And when I want to reiterate that going forward, this is how it will be done. And this is how it needs to be done. And once you say going forward one more time, if you go forward and go backward, oh, 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 oh. I don't know if we'll get into per my last email territory, the start of the email, but I'll probably say somewhere in the body as we discussed. I mean, if I was going to be like a true monster, I would do what Frank did to me, which you'll hear shortly, is which is to be like, as you already know, or you already know, or confirm that you know something and then tell you what you know, and then tell you that you know that. That's illustrating your active neglect of exercising what you know in favor of saying something dumb, apparently. I, I, if I'm feeling crazy and we're going in circles and you didn't do what I asked going forward and you don't seem to read any directions and you're continuing to blame stuff on me, instead of perpetuate your problematic behavior and continue to beat a dead horse. I will properly bury that horse, give it the ceremony it deserves, allowing its spirit to rise up so I can respond to your bullshit within the spirit of transparency. This is how I actually feel. And I will probably not get there till the fourth reply. And instead of just tell you how I feel and attribute it to the real thing at hand because I know that I'm right, and I'm just telling you how I feel because I'm a human person that deserves to be honest without being accused of being a shrill witch, Instead of just telling you like it is, I have to pick something mystic, something in the cosmos. I have to rely on the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit of transparency to say that that is why I am being straightforward with you. It's not me. It's the spirit of the dead horse, of our good Lord, of whatever the hell it is you worship. The spirit has come over me that you are horrible at your job. And now I need to finally tell you after we've been going back and forth for two weeks. And I wish I did this two weeks ago. But again, I was scared of losing credibility. I was scared of being mislabeled as difficult. I didn't want to compromise my chances of working with you going forward because you actually have something I need, even though you're being entirely uncooperative. 
it's very hard to figure out these things, you guys. And if you like, essentially, like if you want to pile drive your point, there are two other words you can use that it's like, whew, whew, she told him, she told him. (laughs) And those words, my friends, are please advise. Tell them like it is, hit them where it hurts, lay out the facts, receipts on receipts on receipts. I want you to prove them wrong with a CVS receipt with full extra care coupons, ignoring your environmental and paper waste concerns like the great sustainability queen you are for one moment, only to provide all necessary exhaustive receipts and then end with please advise. When you want to say, put that in your pipe and smoke it, but instead, you know you're so right that they have nothing to advise how you should move forward because you did the right thing in the first place. And please advise is your way of saying, I don't need and never needed your advisory. I am not a child. Sometimes managers do need to advise. Sometimes you do need a second set of eyes, but I feel like you don't get to please advise territory until you're pretty mad. Uh, One thing I recommend saying that always works, when somebody's asking you to do something, That is not your job. While I do think employees, the way you get noticed and the way you move through organizations is by exceeding your job description. I do think that there are ways to appear to go above and beyond because you care about the health of the organization, not in a way that takes advantage of you or this becomes the expectation. Whenever you go above and beyond and do something that you need credit for, you need to give yourself credit. You need to tell people you did it. You need to forward it to your boss. You need to you need to advocate upward for yourself because nobody knows what you actually do. No, people only know the amount of work you say you do. Nobody else is going to go around being like, look how much work she did. She's awesome. They only care about themselves. And you cannot feel bad for yourself, for people not recognizing the great work you're doing if you're not telling people the great work you're doing. So start out advocating for yourself early and often and making sure that the people in your organization know what you've worked on. I don't care if it seems precocious or annoying. At the very least, if you're doing your job and doing your job well, regardless of any of these like weird social email dynamics or things we say to each other, uh, at the very least, people need to understand the reality of your performance and you need to be uh, your own biggest advocate. You just have to be in every context. Nobody else cares about you as much as you. And I think especially for a lot of women, it's our instinct to be like, oh, shucks. Oh, oh, it was all that person. Oh, so-and-so helped me with it. Which should you give credit to contributors? Absolutely. That is so, so important as a leader. But it's also important to recognize when you're uncomfortable with recognition versus when you don't deserve it or when it needs to be shared. Those are different things. I think it's easy to be uncomfortable with recognition, but you have to swallow it and you have to let yourself be thanked and let yourself be recognized and let your hard work be showcased as an example of a out, the outstanding employee, worker, consultant, whatever you are. So people freaking know what you're capable of. So people know what you're doing. There's no other way that you're going to get yourself on the map. Don't let anybody tell you that you're in a certain position because you're lucky. Don't write off your own success as being luck. Sure, luck is an element of it. But why would we focus on that? If there, if luck was a an instigator, if luck was a big part of the process, well, on the one hand, I think it's on, important to be honest about our journeys and to uh, talk about the realities of the importance where opportunity and luck meet, of the importance where hard work and opportunity meet. 
do you need to set yourself up for the best case of success, putting yourself in as many scenarios and opportunities to have your break as possible? Yes. But you probably set yourself up or entered into a conversation, brought up a topic, did something to get yourself closer to where you wanted to be. And did that result in your break? Yes. Are you eternally grateful? Sure. But you are the one that earned your spot there to actually get the job. You are the one that maintained and sustained this position. And you are the one that ultimately rose to the occasion and moved through the organization. We can't hold ourselves hostage to the people that gave us the first chance. And the people that give us the first chance can't hold us hostage for our eternal debt and gratitude. I struggle with this hugely because, and this is where I factor in luck and good fortune, I I was able to interview with people that understood me could gauge my character, my desire to work hard, my creativity that could gauge all the soft conversational or more client centric skills that they wanted for a job that I was technically underqualified for. But after five plus interviews, they trusted me. We connected. There's a broader story I tell about that at my live shows. And it's kind of crazy to look back on. And um, while I'm eternally grateful to those people, uh, the ones that are still with us, you know, before I, the woman who hired me, unfortunately, passed away a couple years ago, uh, who I like owe everything to. And I so wish I could talk to her now. Uh, the other people who had a role in hiring me, um, who I worked with at that time, who were so instrumental in mentoring me and, um, you know, setting me up for success. Those people are still cheering me on. Those people are still like, you know, will still check in and will I'm still friends with a lot of them and or follow me on Instagram and will DM me. And like, it's just so crazy because it, like kind, smart people make all the difference in an organization and people that champion not just you doing that specific job at that specific company or else, but champion your career and your potential and your capabilities the best leaders want to work for the people that work for them someday. You know what I mean? Like, I genuinely love seeing people soar. I want them to do well. It's a compliment to my leadership if they take off. And especially for women in the workplace, the importance of mentoring and championing other women is so essential. And I think that that based on like the treatment at times where we feel like we're always having to vouch for ourselves, for our spot, for our value. It can create an uncomfortable competition where then even women treat each other, you know, competitively, or there's a lot of ageism that can go on in the workplace. It's completely inappropriate from judging people who are young and inexperienced to judging people who are have a ton of experience and value, but aren't as savvy, like even me making fun of people using, you know, PowerPoint incorrectly earlier, like, you know, should it be should it be my cross to bear that you don't understand PowerPoint screen size ratios and you sent me something in a 4.3 when I need it in a 16.9? Do I, do I want to explain that over and over? No. But I understand that this isn't something that's in, intuitive to you. So uh, I'm going to pick my battles. Uh, but I do think that like it's d- these workplace dynamics are important to consider. I laugh about the ways we're passive aggressive about emails, but at the end of the day, I think it's important to consider why we're doing that. And we should we be passive aggressive? No. Should we be direct? Yes. Should we have to worry about being likable and having to toe the line between being too nice or too firm? Like, no, it's unfortunate and it's frustrating. And while I don't know the answer to how to combat these sort of biases that exist, I do know we can respond the way we want to and not the way we feel like we have to. 
and we're allowed to exist without having the burden of people's impressions of our mere existence. Just day by day, little by little, see what happens if you allow yourself to exist. You deploy the same, you know, social graces and social tact you normally would as a human that's operating in society, but you are not straight up lying just so somebody likes you more. <laughs> that's what I want to, I'm trying to get better at. Okay, so now to my story in case you missed it. So, I know, I know you guys. I always interrupt myself with these ads, but I really always hope you listen because one thing I do always want to be transparent about is A, I'm still a work in progress. B, any self-actualization I have is a result of a lot of work, a lot of self-introspection, of journaling, of trial and error, and of therapy. And I felt like for the longest time my predisposition stood in my way and I would always try to like change fundamentally who I was without realizing there are tools you can use to work around who you are and still embrace all the sides of yourself that actually quite benefit you a lot in your life, but minimize the downsides. I think we're always trying to like overhaul our, our way of being when that's not the case at all. And I think that people are very scared of therapy when really all it is is going to talk to somebody and getting somebody else's input and taking from it what you will. The safety and comfort of being able to speak to somebody who doesn't have a vested interest in your, in your life is so important. And this is why I've partnered with BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and they'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist where you can connect in a safe and private online environment. And I love these online, this online therapy format for the convenience alone, but also for the ability to Get, get, get an appointment in under 24 hours. Like so often you there's a backlog with therapists. It's hard to find one period within your network, but they'll kind of do a lot of the legwork for you. And this is not self-help. This isn't like reading a book where you'll have some like personal epiphany. Um, it, it's professional counseling and, and it's, it's a process. And you can send messages to your counselor anytime. You can get timely and thoughtful responses and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, whatever you're comfortable with. But the biggest thing I think for, especially people starting out is not having to sit in, a, in an uncomfortable waiting room. And this goes for if you're solo, if you want to do couples counseling, whatever it may be, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed, which I also think is super important. Whether, you know, everybody's looking for a different expertise. You may, not, you may not even know what you're dealing with, but from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflict, self-esteem, LGBTQ matters, grief, anything you share is confidential. There's a myriad of professional counselors who are specialized in all of those areas. And through BetterHelp, you can get convenient, professional, and affordable help. And while this is not a crisis line, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So I, I want you guys to seriously consider if this if you want to start living a happier life, if you want to be less burdened by, you know, what you perceive are your shortcomings, if you want to just kind of endure some personal evolution, I think therapy is a great way to start. And BetterHelp is certainly a great resource to leverage in these times where we might not want to go somewhere in person. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash be there in five. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be there in five. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. I genuinely mean this. I hope this will help some of you guys uh, live a little bit more freely, which 
goes into our next conversation because of how much third-party reinforcement I needed in order to deal with the Freds of the world. Anyways, for more context too, and I'll get to some of your stories, the reason I'm talking about this is because last week on Instagram, I had shared an email I received from a guy named Fred, who's a, a broker for ads on behalf of brands. So he finds places like my podcast that uh, might be a hospitable environment to place an ad that meets a lot of their target audience to get the brand, the message, the URL, the code out to a broad audience that they can then gauge the efficacy of through the promo code or URL. And that's how they know if my podcast is a good place to advertise as a part of a media plan. You might remember back in the day, part of my job in marketing effectiveness when I was a director of ad solutions is it was kind of a consulting job that would use market research and consumer behavior data to figure out um, the best way to reach, uh, the best way to get your ad to resonate and the best way to get consumers to react in a way that aligns with your campaign goals. And we would help people basically optimize their media plans and creative to give them the best chance to reach, resonate and react amongst their target audience. So I'm very familiar with the marketing world in general. But again, this actually isn't relevant to this conversation because my entire point was that this guy had no right to talk to Courtney and me in this way for like a little bit of podcast context, typically. So if a lot of people start podcasts who are already famous, you're just going to your pot that a network like a mid roll, a, a head gum, a, um, like a wandry, a podcast one, dear media, these places will kind of set you up with the technology and the hosting and tell you exactly what to do and you record and they handle all the production, they'll handle some of the marketing, they'll handle the hosting, they'll handle the audio mastering, the uploading, blah, blah, blah. And beyond that, a lot of these places will negotiate, most of these places negotiate the ads for you, and they send you the copy and the ads for the week, and they handle all the back end stuff that takes a ton of work. Um, some places do just the uh, advertising piece and not the production piece. Um, but more often than not, it's easier to start a podcast with a one stop shop. I started a podcast and grew through it. And no, nobody would have taken me on at the beginning. Um, but then when I tried to start shopping it around as it got a little bit more successful to kind of like get it set up before it grew even more, I people weren't really open to it because again, not a famous person. Um, and also it's long and that's unfamiliar to people. And as I talked about before, it's pretty much like you got to cut it down to 45 minutes. You have to have five ads and you need to niche down on topics so you're better, easier sell to advertisers all this stuff that wasn't me that I hadn't built and that I wasn't willing to change. So, you know, I always hope that if you forgo small periods of immediate revenue that require you to fundamentally change the integrity of something you're doing, taking the loss for the near term is the better decision for the long term. Because I really do think it's important to know what you're good at, to know what value you're bringing, and to be super aware of when what you're doing may be different, but it's not wrong. And I knew enough people liked what I was doing. There's plenty of people that didn't, but you have to pay attention with business decisions to what's working. And even though people around you might be sharing best practices, and people around you might tell you this is typically what we see as a marker of success or the best way to generate success, while that's important input, input to factor in, and you should believe them to a degree, that's not the only route to success. That's not the only methodology that can be deployed in order to reach your desired outcome. And 
industry experts can be very helpful at times, but I also think that they can stifle innovation by trying to fit people into the model of what they already know works instead of considering that other approaches might be just as lucrative or popular or whatever it may be. So while this was a luxury in a sense, because I was able to have a roof over my head while it took longer for me to monetize my podcast than other people did. I wasn't willing to give up on the format, the range, or the control of when it came out, the topics I was able to talk about. Um, and beyond that, I wasn't willing to give away 30 to 40 to 50% of the revenue. Because if I'm going to share near half of the revenue with you, you best be doing near half the work. I can't stand when people take disproportionate cuts of income to the work and value they're bringing to the table per our conversation about Megan the Stallion's contract. So anyway, I made a decision before I had any success with this that I needed to do what I did with the doormats, did with the book, like whatever. Once you realize how resourceful you are and that you can literally figure anything out because everyone else is a human that's just had to figure stuff out, that Google stuff, you realize you can figure anything out and you're a lot motivated to do that. And I think when sometimes people are like, how do you do X, Y, or Z? I'm like, I Googled it. Like you just... I I think that we just argue for our limitations incessantly. And then when you show yourself your own example, your own anecdotal evidence that you are so much more capable and that you're overcomplicating things in your head, you almost get addicted to trying new things or to saying no, because you want to kind of see if you can figure it out yourself. And when I brought in um, Courtney and she started managing everything, we built out our own business model, essentially, for acquiring and brokering advertisers without having to give a substantial cut to a middleman that once you realize the actions that go into figuring out how to navigate getting these ads, it's not that it's hard. It's just that it's a very smoke and mirrors industry that's a bit hard to navigate. And it would be a lot easier and faster if you can just get on board with a network and they do it all for you. And at that point, they may be delivering 30% or more of value. But I had gotten far enough to the point where that it just wasn't there for me. So anyways, Courtney and I spent all this time building this out to a point where now it works and we know what we're doing and maybe at one point we didn't but we figured it out and um, I say all that because it it provides some context for why people talk to you like this I've talked about how people belittle podcasting as a job period especially women in podcasting and especially the way women's voices and topics are trivialized um, and spoken about and um, another layer of that is if you're not a celebrity and you're not a a podcast that has the third party endorsement that would make an advertiser or broker or an agency more comfortable, there's definitely a way you're spoken to as if you're very small and very unknowledgeable and a way people try to kind of step on you to get what they want, assuming that you don't know better than to accept what they're offering. And we know better. And a lot of these interactions are great and have, I mean, I'd say majority of the time it's smooth sailing, but occasionally you'll get an email from a dude that is just like, it's like they're, they're in the Mad Men era. They're old school, misogynistic media, like wheeling and dealing garbage negotiators that just hit below the belt and pull on these like sexist triggers that I can't stand idly by and not attempt to correct. Not in a way that's not, not in a clapback way, not in a way that prioritizes like a Z snap over the, you know, relaying of information, um, but in a way that is, firm and direct, but kind of puts the words back in their face. And anyways, the email Fred sent me about an advertiser, 
If you want to see this interaction, it's on my Instagram and a highlight called Fred. Long story short, he reaches out on behalf of a client um, asking about our rates and availability. We respond or Courtney responds with the rate and the availability. Um, and when Courtney first wrote back, he was like, oh, I'm impressed. Usually independent podcasters have no clue what they're talking about. And like at first we we're like, oh, that's really nice. He's complimenting us. But then as it progressed, we realized like, oh, no, it was condescending from the beginning. But we were just like, oh, my God, thanks. You, It's, it's kind of what I was saying earlier. We, our instinct was to be flattered by him being like, oh, you're not you're not an idiot. Like, uh, thank you. Because we provided just very basic information with like duration, mid roll, price point, range, contract length, test period, blah, blah, blah. Not not rocket science. But he's like, it's just funny to think back now, like, oh, you actually know what you're talking about. I'm going to reaffirm that you know what you're talking about by telling you that usually women who are independent podcasters don't know what you're talking about. So color me surprised. It's just like, okay, first of all, shut up. So then, well, actually, in the first email, we don't disclose rates because we're like, here's the way we work. What exactly are you looking for? Then we can tell you. So then Corny responds with how much the ads cost. Um, and then... This is how he responds to a price point that he obviously thinks is too high. But, you know, spoiler alert, gang, if you're going to negotiate, you start with your best case scenario. You start high. You don't start with something reasonable. You don't start with like the, the rate you'll tolerate. It only go down from there. It's pretty it's pretty normal to start high in a negotiation. However, the rate we asked for is the rate most of our advertisers pay. And if they don't, it's because we negotiated based on contract length or something. And as with any negotiation, it's going back and forth and you pull different levers and each side makes different concessions that make the trade-off for the thing they don't want to be doing more valuable. So whether it's I concede in some way to justify them paying more or they concede in some way that benefits me outside of just the price point alone, whether it's duration of the contract, the flexibility of the contract, the you know deal I can get my listeners whatever it is and this might not seem a, like at a cursory glance this email doesn't seem like a big deal and I asked like a handful of guys like without context what their read on it is and they all said something along the lines of I think he's trying to get to know you guys um and <laughs> but Courtney and I were like we just we were this, this email filled us with rage we were so frustrated so we shared our rates great detail he he responds back Dropping the client from the thread for this response. I get it and in general agree with what you're saying about CPM not adjusting. That being said, as I'm sure you know, I've got more options on the RFP list than I do money, so I have to justify to the client why I recommend your podcast, blah, blah, blah. Proposes a CPM $20 lower than what I said, which is substantially lower when in aggregate when you're multiplying this by like thousands of people. Um, so... But then he ends that paragraph with his recommendation. But you know, but you know all that already, which begs the question, how long have you been doing this? Do you just rep this show? Do you have an agency or other background with podcasts? Just curious. Fred, there's a few things here. A dropping the client from the thread suggests that like, you know, you're going to be rude, right? That's ridiculous. Two, telling me something that's like very basic knowledge of podcasts uh, in layman's terms and then saying, but you know all that already. Well, he said, as I'm sure you know, da, 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 but you know all that already. And I was like, okay, like you're, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get the point here. 
And then, which begs the question, and that's, you know, that's that as a transition phrase is a whole other thing. How long have you been doing this? Do you just rep this show that's directed toward Courtney? Then I think he said, except I wrote text over it, like others we may be interested in. Which to me, it's like, this is where it gets hard because it's like, this is where you could backpedal. Be like, no, I want, I just want to know like who else you work with. But here's what I know from life is that, do you just like, how long have you been doing this? Do you just rep this show? Any others we'd be interested in type thing is he works with so many brands that if Courtney works with other shows, he can use that as a negotiation tactic to be like, if you want other, like, if you want me to work with you with your other shows, like you better cooperate. Um, and also I think figuring out if she just reps this show as a way to undermine her experience and also ask if she works on others as a way to size up her qualifications. And even if he wanted to say like, no, I wanted to see like who else you could bring to the table client wise. That was his core question. Like, Hey, who else do you work with? I'm taking the client off copy so we can talk shop. It would be one thing, but that was a question like tucked in, all the other condescending questions. How long have you been doing this? Do you just rep this show? Do you have an agency or other background with podcasts? Um, all of, none of those things matter. None of those things matter for the people that you'd work with going forward. None of those things matter with how I price my inventory. None of those things matter with how he should be interacting with us. None of those things matter in a negotiation going forward. Um, he thinks the prices are too high. Uh, but that happens all the time. Like, it's fine. Just say you're not interested and walk away, but kind of decides to like mansplain and jump into this condescending series of questions that are just about our background and just about how many other clients Courtney works with, um, to assume that what we asked for had to be a fundamental symptom of inexperience. And, uh, there wasn't anything driving the value. Why do you think women have trouble asking for money? I mean, seriously, but here's the thing. I posted on Instagram being like, I just want you guys to know how men talk to us in this business. <laughs> like how it is a little trickier when you're trying to do things independently and you don't have a third party to vouch for you. And this is why, like, even though Call Her Daddy isn't like my favorite podcast, when I heard people calling them greedy and like they didn't deserve the money they were asking for, I was like, I want to stand up for them because here's the thing. Your work is worth the value it is bringing to the other person and how it's closing the gap for them to fulfill a particular goal. If this brand's goal is to have more ears hear about their product and have people buy their product, I can deliver them a specific number of ears that have a specific cost per thousand. And based on my historical ad performance data as a coefficient to bulk up that price, I can guarantee that you'll have some sort of success rate. The value of my work is in its delivery the value of my work isn't made up out of an arbitrary desire to feel entitled to a certain amount of money just because I am who I am, just because I want to swindle you, just because I don't know enough and I haven't been doing this long enough, so I just, I don't know, through a dart, hit a number, that's what I'll charge. My work is worth what I say it's worth, and you can ask me for the reason why I priced it that way, and I will explain with very good reason the data-driven factors that are the key levers in driving a particular price point, especially if what I'm charging deviates from industry standard. In most scenarios, experience does dictate how much you're paid, but in media and advertising, the currency is exposure to the brand. The currency is audience size the number of people who have the opportunity to hear or see 
an ad in hopes that will it will ultimately lead them further down the purchase funnel to ultimately act in a way that meets the campaign goals. And you do a whole lot of modeling and data-backed research to figure out how to best allocate your ad spend across mediums. And my show is just one show within a full medium across several mediums that brands work within in order to hopefully drive success for their products. If I produce a return for them and I, and I sell, you know, people buy this product because I endorse it because they heard about it from me. It has absolutely nothing to do with the questions he asked. What is not important is how long I've been doing this, how many clients Courtney works with, if we just do this show, if we have an agency background, or if we have a podcast background. Also, you said, but you know all this already, acknowledging twice that I know this, then condescending me with more questions about my background, dropping the client from the response because he knew it was going to be rude, and had the audacity to end it with just curious. You had the audacity to be named Fred. (laughs) and this is why these things can we can let these things go easily because when i read that and i was frustrated not only did i just like play hopscotch between i'm offended i'm overreacting i'm offended i'm overreacting should i respond let me let let me spend an hour of drafting a response and pace around my house i shouldn't be offended should i ask somebody else should i put this on instagram should i ask other people should i see how they react because i don't know if i'm overreacting but it just doesn't feel right like it's it's so crazy how to to what great lengths i will go to fight my instincts but it's because people like him make me second guess myself and no nobody can make us feel inferior but ourselves i get it eleanor roosevelt (laughs) however over time, this sort of these sorts of interactions do wear on you and do get in your head and you can't help but, you know, feel like you're not in the position of power and like you don't have the authority or the experience to talk back to them in a way that gets your point across when you absolutely do. But you're just made to feel so small. And I think that that's what gets me is amidst my pacing and uncertainty of, you know, if I have the right to be frustrated by this. And beyond that, the frustration of like, I'm, t- I'm, I'm having to take time out of my busy day to figure out how to respond to this, where he thought so little of the email, he barely punctuated, much less thought of how he spoke to me. But I'm having to spend hours thinking about my response, so I can come across in a way that doesn't make this problem worse, but also sends him a very clear message. I think about people who are in vulnerable positions. I think about even where I was last year. I think about how long it's taken me to be selective and who I get to work with when there are times when you have to ignore things like this just to have income. I think about closing the wage gap. I think about the microaggressions toward you know women, period, but women of color that I, I don't even see or notice. That just like I'm having to explain to my guy friends the, the, the tone here, the hidden messages here. A black woman might have to explain to me what's hidden in another message. And somebody like me could deny its existence because that's the thing about bias, about microaggressions, about racially coded communication, about sexist coded communication. It's not fucking Casper. You don't have to see it for it to exist. You need to believe the experience of the person who's telling you how they feel and how something feels directed toward them because it's not up to you to decide how they feel, one, two, if something, if you do not embody a particular group that this person is telling you has very specific toned communication toward them, you don't get an opinion. And three, 
Nobody wants to be offended all the time. Nobody wants to have their afternoon derailed. Nobody wants to feel like they're being condescended to or belittled. This is not what I wanted to do with my Friday. This is not fodder to have a podcast episode to talk about it. When I sit down and and like think about these tiny interactions, now we're in 2020 and how people are so quick to deny this behavior, but it's so alive and well. And how not only do we have such a wage gap in the workforce, but beyond that, the we have the motherhood penalty we're dealing with where data shows that the time women have to take off for having kids can impede on promotions that if they're the you know if they end up being the primary caregiver that they are forced to work less hours which in turn gives you perceived less experience which makes you less eligible for promotions that women are seek more flexible jobs that are more flexible with parents therefore taking lower paying jobs that they're overqualified for leaving the workforce altogether in this time when we need to you know virtually teach our kids but somebody needs to be at home and we're in a public health crisis a pandemic that you don't exactly want childcare coming in your house at all times that you don't know or worse older people or parents that you could potentially be compromising there's a complicated issue with women in the workforce. And um, while I can't take it on, and I they can't even begin to help, like, I don't even know what I would do. I think I start to think more about these one on one small interactions, that while nominal to the greater problem, are tiny ways, if you're a woman in a position of privilege to be selective, that you don't need that check, or that it's not your number one priority. That's when you need to push back and defend yourself and therefore hopefully prevent that behavior from being directed towards somebody else, potentially in a more vulnerable position that can't stand up for themselves or to the wrong person on the wrong day where it's just going to eat away at your soul in a way that we let imposter syndrome do to us. Because if you're already feeling like you don't belong, you're underqualified, you're trying to prove yourself or whatever, and somebody comes along and reinforces those insecurities, it, it's a horrible feeling. Look what Mitchum Hunsberger did to Rory. You crushed that girl, to quote Richard, RIP. Anyway, and in the context of me asking to get paid a respectable number that other people pay me that I am entitled to ask for, I think that's what gets me, is thinking about how hard it is to get paid, to argue for your worth, to not do people favors, to not just let people pick your brain. You know, like you're, you have, everybody has value in their own way and everybody's entitled to ask to be compensated for the exchange of said value without seeming greedy or entitled or undeserving. And what's tricky about these things is this guy's connected. This is why abuses of power matter. This is why power dynamics matter. Because Honestly, the only person that will get screwed by pushing back is me because he can gatekeep other advertisers, other brands and deem me difficult to work with. But that's OK. That's a risk I'm willing to take at this point because I, I, I know I'm not in the wrong here. But it is kind of a funny thing to catch yourself doing um, to not only have to figure out to not only have a reaction, have to figure out if it's OK that you're offended. Ask other people if they would be offended, too. And if you're not crazy. Uh, then figure out if you're going to write an email, period, and weigh the implications on your career if you merely stand up for yourself and you merely just correct them for being wrong when you know you are right. The fact that like, I'm pacing around my apartment and drafting emails and asking other people, 
all the while, I'm, <laughs> I'm the one that was just condescended toward. And I'm still not even totally sure if I have the right to, you know, respond back firmly. It's just like this crazy mind game that like, as confident and, and as I am, and as firm as I feel about these things, I still am hugely sensitive and default back to an imposter syndrome, default back to being undeserving. People make me feel that way all the time. And as much as I want to think I have control over it, you know, it, it has been scary trying a lot of different jobs. And a lot of my steps in my career have been objectively slightly embarrassing. And when you're not in industries that people traditionally like respect, you don't have the tenure where people would call you a subject matter expertise. I think maybe I'm a little bit more fed up because of my interactions with people about podcasts or pop culture or my social media book or doormats or whatever. So maybe I'm on extra high alert. Uh, but all that to say... Something I'll hear a lot, or I've definitely done a lot, or the, the advice you'll sometimes get that might work sometimes, but oftentimes just allows this behavior to perpetuate is when somebody's like, you're giving them so much power. If you engage, it's just, it's just like letting them have power over you. And like, yeah, maybe in some situations, but in like workforce type situations, I don't always agree. I think Rug Sweepers Anonymous, people will tell you, you're giving it so much power. Like, just don't think about it. Don't don't let it live rent free in your brain, blah, blah, blah. And I agree with that sometimes. But there are times when I think that spending a little bit of your time trying to figure out the best way to minimize and mitigate this sort of behavior going forward, if you're in a position that you're able to is important just for women to be leaders in this sense and to stand up for other women for situations that you know are hypothetical and haven't even happened yet, but very, very well could. I think if you can afford to, and if you have the time to, and if you think it's worth it, it is our responsibility to break the chain. I mean, I can tell you what I said back, but it's not that exciting. Well, first of all, I put the client back on the loop. I said, Fred, putting the client back on copy to close the loop. No, our rates are not a function of inexperience, low tenure, and or lack of industry knowledge. We use historical ad performance data from the show's vanity URLs and codes to inform the rates. While industry standards are good benchmarks, these engagement metrics serve as additional coefficients we use to determine the value of the ad spot by factoring in both impressions and conversion data. For what it's worth, we are sold out through end of year with these rates but are adding bonus episodes to accommodate demand. As far as your questions, I'm repped by WME, Courtney's my manager and handles contracts, and I could justify the depth of my industry experience and Courtney's breadth of clients, but that's entirely irrelevant given that podcast ads are not priced based off of that information. But to use your words, you know that already. Just like you were selective with your budget, we're selective with our inventory, and I don't think this is the right fit. Kate. I think it's kind of mild, if I'm honest. <laughs> the only kind of the only kind of um, clap backy thing I did is to use your words, but I wanted him, I, I needed to point out an example of how that reads to somebody else when you're saying like stating the obvious, and here I'm stating that podcast ads are not priced based off of his questions, which is pretty obvious, and he knows that already. So therefore, I will reinforce him just as he reinforced me. <laughs> Based long story short. The way he responded was that I think there's been a terrible miscommunication. Um, you misunderstood what I was saying. I took the client off copy because I was genuinely curious, like who you guys worked with and if we could work together going forward, blah, 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 blah. Um, but if it was just about that, it wouldn't have been about the pricing specific to that client. <laughs> and he didn't just ask questions about that. It, it was like the, the bottom line is, I didn't re respond back. I'm not engaging further. Um, the client re replied back to 
citing a miscommunication uh, instead of even considering for a second that there was merit to what I was saying and to the client being a female and um, the brand being something kind of in the women's empowerment field. And it's just so ironic and ridiculous. And um, I don't know, I got a reply like as I'm like right before I'm recording this, I don't know how I'll move forward with it. But it's like, I said what I needed to say. And it's not about like going back and forth now. And I just, especially because in the context with the previous email, there's always going to be a way it can spun. There's always going to be a way you can kind of be like gaslit and made to think you're crazy. But I think you need to follow your instincts. And um, the backtracking and what he said it was about, like wanting to get to know us. <laughs> it's just, it's just funny. Because like, if the, maybe those were his intentions. Like, I don't know, but it just doesn't really add up because if you're pushing back on the price and then following up with the price pri, price pushback saying my rates are too high by asking me and Courtney all of these questions about basically if we know what we're doing, but then trying to be like, oh no, I just wanted to like know how long you've been in the biz or I wanted to work with you on other clients. Like, no, you wanted to know if we work with other clients to use it as a negotiation lever. And you wanted to know if we price it this high because of our inexperience. And you wanted to take the client off copy because you know the tone you were intending to deliver by going after those two things and by justifying the email with saying you were doing just one of those things, then it would have been a separate email, separate conversation. You should have kept the client on copy for discuss discussions with the rates and the negotiation. And if you wanted to engage with Courtney or me on other shows outside of something, send a separate email with the client off copy. But in combining those things and using that tone and following up with your prices are too high, you know that already. Let me just, which begs the question, how long have you been doing this? to kind of go back, make me feel crazy, like I overreacted, which is kind of what any justification email does when you could just apologize. It's it's like, <clears throat> you, to argue that he was just trying to get to know us and was just generally asking those questions, or so he could work with other clients. I'm like, you said, which begs the question, you said, this is why I think your rates are too high. You know that already, which begs the question, how long have you been doing this? That is a transition phrase that we use to get from one idea to the next. It was deliberate. He knew what he was doing. I think he thought he was being a shark negotiator when it just didn't go over well with me. And the client siding with the miscommunication, siding with his side of the story is just like par for the course. And like beyond this point, it's like, there's nothing for me to really take on. The consequence almost needs to be left at like, we're just done. We're not engaging. And there it's definitely a way that he could have responded that I would have, like if I were the client, I would have emailed me directly with him off copy and been like, I'm so sorry, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we'll work with you directly. Or um, we've talked to Fred about how we want our brand represented and how, like, you know what I mean? Um, the whole thing is just stupid. And I feel like, even me talking about it this much is stupid. And I know it's not like I'm not trying to get attention. or I don't care that much. It's just like, I, I want to use this, like kind of long form play this out because it's a small example of these tiny interactions that happen all the time that are so easy to brush to the side. And I think that it just represents a much bigger problem that, you know, really disincentivizes women from standing up for themselves for asking for what they deserve, and perpetuates gaps and inequities that we are constantly trying to solve for while, you know, almost subconsciously 
uh, fueling <laughs> uh, the, this type of behavior because uh, we don't want to take on the energy and the labor of having to correct somebody who's mistreating us which is valid too at times. I don't correct a lot of things because I don't like the, the interactions I have with people day in and day out, especially over DMs and stuff. It's like, it, it isn't worth the energy because it's not actually, it doesn't actually have any bearing on my life, my work on, you know, whatever outcome or return I want to see from the way I spend my time. There's, it's important to acknowledge when you're wasting energy. Uh, but I think in certain circumstances, it is absolutely worth it to stand up for yourself for other people, or in the hypothetical scenario that you might be preventing that sort of behavior down the line, and it might get in the head of the wrong person whose career will be impeded as a result. So this, this whole Fred thing kind of yielded a really interesting conversation on Instagram, and where you guys were telling me, your stories about how often this happens to you. And it's so interesting how industry to industry, it varies. And industry to industry, there's like a much different level of like what is tolerated or what's just like expected in terms of, you know, poor behavior. For example, lawyers were saying like, you wouldn't believe I mean, I've been in my firm for 12 years. I'm a partner. And when I get on the phone with people, they'll ask me when I graduated because of the tone of my voice or you know what I mean? It's like th that's the sort of the, those are the small things you don't really think about um, that, you know, sometimes it might be accidental and you might sound juvenile, but some people have high pitched voices. Uh, I, I, all I ever want to do is help people not. I, I, I want you to feel less alone and I don't want you to feel crazy if you feel like you're on the receiving end of this sort of behavior and you also convince yourself you're overreacting because like it could be worse like yeah it always could be worse um and yeah maybe it's not a big deal and it takes out you know a lot of energy for to care um but i think when it's helpful to know the prevalence of this behavior and for people to understand how alive and well it is and when people dismiss it or act like you know, sexism isn't still a huge issue, act like there aren't major, you know, unconscious biases in place for myriad of reasons in the workplace that prevent, you know, underrepresented groups from balancing the inequities that would actually achieve true equality in the workforce. These are important conversations to have. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to share your examples. It's a little bit hard to articulate email back and forth in a way that's not too choppy and is understandable, but I'm going to share a handful of them that I got because I think it's important we all relate to each other's struggles. Uh, it's just, it's hard. I don't know. I almost need like a visual means to do this. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, okay. We'll get to a, a handful of stories. I won't keep you too long. Uh, but it's hard to know what's, how to optimize this uh, audible medium. Even though these stories are far from rare, which leads me to my next point of the meat I love to cook medium rare, which is butcher box. <laughs> As you know, we do steak, steak Sundays, but I also make their chicken wings with this spice from Aldi. It's not important, uh, but I feel like I'm making these like fresh homemade chicken wings that are better than like a frozen buffalo chicken wing. Gre Greg's gotten into pork chops recently. I mean, truly, it's a journey. But there's a lot of products we use from ButcherBox because we love it so much. And it can be hard to find 100% grass-fed or finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, wild-caught salmon at the grocery store. And there's a lot of hidden fees and a lot of murkiness as it relates to the classification of the meat and how it was raised and treated in its lifetime. And luckily there's ButcherBox. They believe everybody deserves high quality, humanely sourced meat. 
you can just have it show up at your door. It's very, it's very minimal labor, especially I, I find grocery shopping to be like overwhelming as a person, especially in the city without a car. And especially who remembers the despair of quarantine period where I literally lived off this meat in my freezer. And I kind of appreciate that I will never be without something to cook for dinner because there's always meat in my freezer. It's one less trip to the grocery store and a better, more affordable selection too. So every month ButcherBox will ship a curated selection of high quality meat to your home all free of antibiotics and added hormones. There is nine, uh, nine to 11 pounds of meat per box. It's about 24 individual meals, packed fresh, shipped frozen, and vacuum sealed. So it will stay that way. You can customize your box, go with one of theirs, whatever you want. It's kind of a no-brainer, and it's the way meat should be. ButcherBox is the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat at around $6 a meal, and they have free shipping nationwide. Except for Alaska and Hawaii. You know, it's the, it's the contiguous that always gets you. And, and for that, I'm sorry. But for the 48 other states, you get free shipping. And right now, ButcherBox is offering new members ground beef for life. That is two pounds of ground beef in every box for the life of their subscription. Just go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five. That is butcherbox.com slash be there in five. I, I use this ground beef for everything from burgers where I mix it with like an onion soup mix to tacos to we make pizzas it's a whole thing anyway I'm, I'm done with the ad i just wanted to let you know I, I genuinely use this ground beef and i like it uh anyway you guys okay on to some stories let's see here okay i studied engineering in college also i don't read these beforehand corny puts them in a word doc for me <laughs> sometimes i read and respond sometimes we thank people before we read them so I can just react on air. It's a whole thing. Anyway, it's never, I, I just always want anybody to know who emails me. Like it, it matters. It makes a difference. And I'm so incredibly grateful. Uh, I studied engineering in college and the amount of shit women put up with in this industry is unreal. My professor made a comment that once I got out of college, I'd really see how the industry and frankly society treats women in STEM Thankfully, I'm surrounded by a wonderful staff at a wonderful and rewarding job and literally have only had these two things happen since entering the workforce. I know others experience way more microaggressions and discrimination than me. At a job interview several years ago for a small engineering firm, the interviewers, both males, made a comment about the university I went to saying something like, wow, if you pass the engineering and tra engineer and training exam they must be teaching you something right at that school it was incredibly offensive but I brushed it off and kept smiling staying engaged but feeling like I now needed to prove my worth at this engineering firm not to mention of the 15 or so staff there were two female and one were the one was a secret secretary I ended up contacting one of my female engineering professors mentors who I trust and letting her know that what happened and she basically said do you want to work with people who make you feel this way two weeks later they sent me an offer after insulting my knowledge and alma mater you know what I had to you sunglass emoji <laughs> love you respectfully decline and not bring up the reason why i was so turned off about about their firm also one time i sent out an email out to my workplace to say i was sick it was two mornings in a row and definitely had nothing to do with a ridiculous three-day hangover and one of the older men sent back the second day morning sickness winky face ew it was disgusting and absolutely inappropriate it wasn't bold enough to address it for as angry as it made me. I think I responded with something like, haha, oh no, just a stomach bug. I never mentioned to anybody besides my husband and parents. Wait, that's so annoying. Bless your heart. <laughs> that is super rude to say like, uh, if you pass this exam, they must be teaching you something, right? And it's funny too, because like a person like me reading it, you're kind of like trying to make sure I read it right in the tone and it's even hard to read it in the tone you read it in, but your instinct is always right, you know? 
Um, let's see here. Oh, I'm laughing because Courtney, <laughs> my Courtney, who manages me in the podcast, she said, did I ever tell you about how I dyed my hair brown not long after my wedding? I worked in an office where I had frequent interaction with repeat customers, many who have visited this office for years. Anyway, her husband was deployed with the military and I was newly married and obviously going through some things, huh? So I went from super blonde to pretty dark brown, but honestly, close to my natural color. Everybody was super nice about it, except this old white man who came up to my window at the office. He saw me drop the items in his hands in shock and asked, what did you do to your hair? I tried to be super casual and just explain that I just went back to my natural color and he, knowing I was a newlywed, asked, oh, did your husband know you were a brunette when he married you? <laughs> Courtney, <laughs> you've not told me that story. <laughs> Her blood is boiling just thinking about it. Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, not sure of the subject line, but had a couple that came to mind. I don't have the emails because they were phone conversations, but here they are. Uh, I was telling my husband this the other night. Men consistently speak to women like we're children when discussing business. I was quoting shipping of a nutritional supplement to a Canadian man. From his tone, he is in business. Don't remember what kind. Canada charges 10% tax in the U.S. and 15% brokerage. So he quoted 25% tax and brokerage to all Canadian orders. He then screamed at me, called me a stupid little girl for charging him such absurd rates. I was trying to I was trying to price gouge and pocket his money. He spoke to my supervisor, also a woman, who quoted him the same price, and he paid it. Fucker. <laughs> I hear you and I see you. <laughs> That's so annoying. And it would... You know, I, I feel like everyone's suspicious of everybody trying to swindle them all the time, myself included. But the addition of little girl is just a special level of infuriating. Uh, this person sent an attached email. I'm submitting the attached email as a response to your IG stories. I hate that emails like this are such a common thing women have to put up with. A few years ago, I had to file an HR complaint on the author of this email because he ended up screaming in my face and I was fearful of being hurt by him in the office during the incident, all about a decision my boss had made for my position. He got a slap on the wrist and has been cold and distant to me since. He's in his late 40s and a VP at my company. I manage a book of clients that are typically engaged by him, then assigned to me to manage the relationship. I got it. Approved by my supervisor as part of a as part of my 2020 development plan, I wanted to challenge myself to network more and gain a new client for my own book. I did so and looped him in when it was good as good as closed. This was his response. The person he threatens to run is our the person he threatens to run to is our mutual boss to remove from me an executive vice president. He made me feel like I didn't earn a seat at the table when I'm the one who got us to the table. Ugh, also his typos. Okay, it says so and so. That is not the format of our organization. I am responsible for identifying and prospecting new partnerships. Your role is to manage the new relationships. I will keep you informed of the progress as well as so-and-so, but you, your support will not be needed at this initial meeting. Tugboat settle. I insist and will take to blank if you continue to push this point. I appreciate your enthusiasm, but this is not the precedent I want to set. Thanks for understanding. Ugh. I'm like, I'm like, you know that thing in Friends where they say like "f you," but like knock their wrists and elbows together. Yeah, well, because I'm reading these and I understand what you're saying. Like, it's. I hope people understand how uh, infuriating this is over podcasts because. Um, you're trying to network and gain a new client for your book. Your supervisor told you this is part of your development plan. You looped him in when it was as good as close to pass it off to him. And he threatens 
your boss and the two removed from you boss, executive vice president, like you didn't get this lead yourself, admonishing you for not being the format of your organization, saying, I'm responsible for this. Your role is this. I'll keep you informed of the process, but your support will not be needed. I insist and will take to this boss if you continue to push this point. I appreciate your enthusiasm, but this is not the precedent I want to set. Thanks for understanding. There are other ways to handle that, even if you felt that way. Ugh, that's infuriating. God bless. Next story. This is a Facebook message I received from a fellow alumna of my high school. I'm a 2012 grad and on the board of their as their PR chair per their request since they never had an alumna board before. And this woman about 15 years older than me was pissed and assumed because I'm young, I'm inexperienced. She felt I was stealing her concept for a big and little sister program, which is absolutely not something she came up with. I also don't respond well to especially other women. I'm good at what I do because I'm good and I respect other people because they're good, not just because of the sisterhood. I agree. As we've talked about, we don't support, women don't support other women because they have no grounds to stand on other than that you're a woman. Women support other women who are furthering the purpose, achievement, and the quality of other women, not who are holding us back. So this person said, if you are going to do PR, some professional advice is to be aware of your perception and maybe to make your own mark on the association rather than trying to capitalize on what someone else was able to get engagement on and momentum on. It may not have been your intention to steal it, but that's exactly what happened here. I don't do that to others, especially to women. Gross. And she's profu- and she's like profusely apologizing and appreciating her feedback, which I would do too, honestly, but you don't need to. <sighs> this is the next story. I studied engineering in college and the amount of, oh, no, I already went over that one, sorry. Uh, below is the email I received from a plaintiff's attorney. Oh, and by the way, he ended up calling me asking for a settlement before trial and the case settled for the exact same amount my client offered a year prior since there was a video proving that his client committed perjury. I left in all of his grammatical errors, Avi. Will you please block out my name if you read? Thanks. Okay, I need to make sure I understand because every industry is different. Okay. She received this email from a plaintiff's attorney. So she would be representing the defendant. Right? He ended up calling me asking for a settlement before trial, and the case settled for the exact same amount my client offered a year prior since there was a video proving that his client committed perjury. Okay. This is to her. I understand that you want to do do the best by your client. However, your, in quotes, concise statement of the facts is pretty ridiculous. It's certainly is not concise and it's argumentative. Great sentence, bro. I think you're a good young lawyer, but you need some direction on a case like this. This company does not seem to have a clue about its exposure. This is the kind of case that we all dreamed of having in law school. Your employee is a perjurer who caused my client to suffer very severe permanent disabling injuries for which she will suffer for the rest of her life. Rather than attempting to shirk your company's responsibilities, your company should be trying to settle this case. I have a hard time believing that the ultimate decision maker has been fully informed of this case's potential. As a former defense lawyer for 20 plus years, I can tell you that my advice to your company would be to put this fire out now. I look forward to trying this case of clear liability against your company which is relying on perjured testimony in a desperate attempt to escape responsibility i'm sure you'll now be asking for a continuance because you're unprepared for this trial frankly i frankly i don't think your company is ever going to be prepared for this trial i trust this correspondence will be shared with whomever has the ultimate responsibility for assessing the exposure this case presents attorney so i'm so curious like 
yeah, I, I, lawyer stuff is so interesting to me because like, is intimidation name of the game? Is that some like bullshit you shouldn't have to deal with? Like, I don't, that email is so dismissive and rude, but like, I don't know. Is that, is that what you hire a lawyer to do? Like, is there an, I, I don't really know. Cause I've definitely been strongly worded on some intellectual property stuff that would make me seem like a monster, but it, but it was people that were profiting off of what was rightfully mine and ignoring my cease, cease and desist. You know what I mean? There's a time to be firm and a time to be neutral, but I really feel like that the lines that really get you or I'm sure you'll now be asking for a continuous because you're unprepared for this trial. <laughs> so rude. Was, this is a new email. I was working in an, in an interior design role for office modernization. Think open concept offices for people who definitely did not want them. Me, a 20-something woman of color with significant design project management experience, would do the strategy, consult with clients, built an entire consultation process, um, plan finances, did the project management while engaging the client throughout the implementation until the client moved into their new space. My 20-something white male counterpart would manage the change upon move-in, dealing with the minutiae, listening to people complain, etc. He had no experience in the field. His work wasn't easy, but a different kind of change management and communications work than I would do. Let's call him Brennan. We had a few projects for some change-averse lawyers in Western Canada, read blue slash conservative, um, which in Canada, I guess blue is conservative. Interesting. That's different than the U.S.? Uh, and despite me spending nine months gearing up these projects by myself, days before it came to book my travel for the consultations, my boss, a white female, said, I think we're going to send Brennan. The lawyers, the lawyers will react better to him being a man and able to conduct himself in stressful situations. Brennan hadn't touched this project, had no background, and I had done literally all the legwork, and he would get the glory for two days' consultation with the client. I was so shook that I called my boyfriend on my two-block walk home. I knew the product director was standing at the crosswalk and I was leaving, but I pretended to not see them knowing he was fully in earshot. I said, I've spent nine months working on this project, and they're sending him because he's a straight white male that's racist, and I'm going to to go to the union because that's bullshit. I work in a federally unionized job. I'm pretty sure my project director heard that and on Monday morning I was booked to go to my project that I worked on. Of course, the compromise was that he came with me. Worst of all, my boss, a 50-something white female, had adopted three people of color as her children who were my age and is still setting the next generation back at work. Thankfully, this was three years ago and on that trip I confided in him with the systemic sexism and racism I faced and we built a great bond and he's become a great ally calling out their bullshit until I left the organization last year moral of the story people may be shitty but finding an ally is incredibly hard but i also can't understate the importance of it kate thanks for always listening learning and keeping me so entertained for workouts doing the dishes or just sitting on my balcony balcony contemplating who is the superior olsen twin i love you i'm obsessed with you i'm obsessed with the story i'm obsessed with you leveraging him being with an earshot i'm obsessed with him coming full circle this is such an interesting story because what they did was so bad and so messed up what, and also what's so messed up is your lack of comfort in confronting them because people don't create safe environments for these things. And upon having to be like in shock of it being thrust upon him, he took action, which is a, sh a shame, but at least he ultimately did. That's so fascinating. Only three years ago, I'm glad you got to go to the client. I'm annoyed your boss had to come with you, but I'm glad he became an ally and, and you know, helped within the organization. Wow, that is layered. Thank you for sharing. Tugboat sneezing, and I'm so sorry. Um, 
This one says, let me preface this with the fact that I've been in the nonprofit world for 90% of my career. This was right as I began my second nonprofit fundraising event planning job. I ran a series of events that all raised money centered around sailing. Yes, I actually held a regatta gala. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I actually held a regatta gala and beating cancer. Uh, oh, money centered around sailing and beating cancer. Highbrow people raising money, a tale as old as time. So we had one event specifically called Yacht Hop, where we approached local boat owners, <laughs> read yacht, had captains and staff to donate their the use of their boats in this basically fancy local boat show. People paid money to tour the yachts and eat donated fancy food from local restaurants. Another note, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, acutely acquainted with boats, yachts, and their value, generally treating sailing with reverence because it was all over my city. Not a flex, just important for background. One sec, gotta let the dog out. Okay, I'm back. Um, so as I am approaching these yacht owners, I am doing so by email to send them all the pertinent information, schedules, tide charts, etc. One guy writes back to me, how dare you ask to use my multi-million dollar yacht in an email? Never reach out to me again. I was absolutely dumbfounded. How was I supposed to reach out? It's 2017. Email is efficient. At a loss for words, I had to ask my boss what to do. I couldn't believe it. She sort of sent it up the email chain of command, and honestly, people swept it under the rug and chalked it up to, like, that guy's a jerk. But at the end of the day, I never forgot how rude it was, as if I didn't understand the value of his yacht, the story, whatever, but also, dude, have some perspective. I'm asking for your help to hopefully raise money for kids with cancer. Screw you. I realize this is kind of a frivolous story, but reading your story, I immediately came to, it immediately came to mind for making me feel so small and undeserving. And then how no one really re reacted to him being such an ass. I'm sure there's more prolific experiences, but it really left a mark early on in my career. No, I, I agree with you. And I that's what I that's what's like interesting, because typically when I'm reading stories, it's like, oh, my God, that asshole. I can't believe this. And it's almost hard to articulate uh, the passive aggression and like needless, rude nature of these interactions. But they matter. And when you really think about it in context of being like, I'm raising money for charity to say back to you in all caps. How dare you ask to use my multi-million dollar yacht? Like never talk to me again. It's like, who talks to people like that? It's absolute insanity. And I'm here with you. I, I, I hear you. Um, I don't have a screenshot, but I was full of, but I was speaking to a man who was full of questions for me. I'm an elected public official, and he interrupted to ask me if I was college educated. When I said yes, he asked me to detail my college career and degree. Ugh, I'm so mad for you. You're an elected public official. I'm assuming because I was speaking as if I owned the place and knew the facts like the back of my hand and because I'm a woman, it shocked him. It still makes me feel upset. Pretty damn certain no one has interrupted a male to ask them if they're college educated and the what, when, and how of the details. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? It's so gross. It's so gross. It's, it's, it's. It makes my skin crawl. It upsets me to my core. I don't even know how to handle that information. It's just such an antiquated way to look at things. It's like beyond upsetting. Um, I once was working for a company in which both my supervisor and his supervisor, the boss, were male. The boss emailed me urgently one morning demanding an updated report on numbers. I spent nearly all day pulling data and compiling this report quadruple checking my work before sending it back. He proceeded to email my direct supervisor to tell me the report couldn't possibly have been accurate and demanded the supervisor run and submit the report instead. 
My supervisor reached back out to me and asked me to pull the numbers for him, which I'd already done, but did again and quintuple checked before sending back to my supervisor. Nothing had changed for my original accurate submission, FYI, because hashtag accuracy. He proceeded to submit the doc to the boss, but this time with his name, and the boss said the report was perfect. I am so mad. This... <laughs> I'm getting heated. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm just like, no, I'm trying to be cool and not react because like nobody needs my reactions. But <sighs> these frustrate me so much. I, I had to go off the recording earlier for the person in Canada who wasn't going to be able to see her client whose client like whose boss eventually became an ally. Like, I don't know how to like even process some of these, you guys. Um, but, you know, united we stand. Uh, our country, guess it was a lawless land. Quiet my fears with the touch of your hands. Paper cut stains on my paper thin plans. My time, my one, my spirit, my trust. I was only doing the death by a thousand cuts bridge while I scrolled to kill time. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. There are times in my life that I so wish I was on a reality show only for the fact that I would have caught these moments on video and I would have hard proof. Well, I'm not, so I don't. I figured I'd throw this your way. While working at my last job that was at, I was at for six years before leaving, there was an instance in the company lunchroom slash kitchen with one of my male coworkers regarding a bunch of spilled water on a counter that neither of us were responsible for, but had both come across. I should note that we worked in the same group within the company, both in sales, and that at the time I was in my late 20s, while he had to have been in his late 50s. The exact comment to me upon seeing the spill in front of other coworkers as well was, Jamie, you're a woman. You clean it up. As I'm sure you can guess, I absolutely did not clean it up. That comment still sticks with me today. It's such a shocking level of disrespect to a coworker. Tugboat's furious. And coupled with many other similar instances were ultimately reasons I left that company. Thought it was worth sharing. Oh my God. So it's like one of those things too. Do you remember when it was like cool and popular to be like making jokes about women in the kitchen? And like it was like almost funny to be like overtly sexist does that make sense is that from like a will ferrell movie every dude bases personality off a will ferrell movie for you know the early aughts okay i need to let the dog out of my office he's being really disruptive men you know you're rude about your yacht you're rude about your tugboat <laughs> after america's beauty show which is at mccormick oh in chicago i went out with the editor-in-chief of nails magazine and a friend who works for opi Oh, this is my friend who works in, uh, she's like a very well-renowned nail artist. They love beer and breweries, and since I'm not much of a drinker, I drove them around on their beer tour of Chicago. We go to Goose Island, and we're saying we're coming from this beauty show, and I knew one of the bartenders because she used to be a client. This guy comes up to our table after we're settled in, and he starts to tell me that my old client would show off her nails and mention the price of the nail art I would give her. He tells me that I'm charging way too much, and that if I wanted to be successful, I needed to charge like $20. And why would I need to charge more than that? That's just being greedy. You're approaching a table of three women in the industry. An ID checker doorman who's never had a manicure telling me how to run my business. All of us got upset and he walked away. He returned 30 minutes later to tell us he was just trying to help and give the tough advice no one wants to give. Fuck that guy and his bad advice. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. What, what, what comes over people? Literally. Like that, that, that makes no sense. That anybody would... Oh, my God. That's crazy. 
This one says, take a look at this doozy of a message I received from a client a few years ago. I'm sorry if you can hear talk about in the background. Um, it ticks all the boxes. I'm not sure if it's the constant reference to how I'm, how I'm his daughter's age, claiming I'm emotional because I'm a woman, or the thinly veiled threat that I'll remember this conversation in the future that makes me angrier. Keep in mind, this was an email follow-up for to a 20-minute conversation when he called me on the phone out of the blue to tell me all the things I was doing wrong and how I didn't know my place in this company. Meanwhile, I was a paid consultant there to point out inefficiencies and make recommendations for improvements. Are you a black belt? Uh, guess he didn't like being called on his BS in front of his peers and boss. Don't worry, I fired them as a client a few weeks later and moved right down my waiting list of people who actually wanted to work with me. Good for you. Emily, I thought for both of our benefits, I would reiterate what we just spoke about. While I appreciate your expertise most of the time, the way you approached our conversation on Friday was irresponsible. As someone with two daughters your age, I know how easy it is to let your emotions take toll. No. For your own sake, I'm sharing this advice to make sure you don't make this mistake again in the future. Please do not let your emotions play a role in business. You do not know what you speak of when it comes to blank webinar program and the promotions that you sh that should be posted for it. As a young woman in business, you should know when it is appropriate to speak up and when you should just sit back and listen. <sighs> That conversation where you interjected your, quote, ideas was one of those listening times. As I said this morning, I'm only bringing this up because I would want someone to do it for my daughters. I know you'll remember this conversation in the future. Oh my God, absolutely not. This brings me back to AOC. Just because you have daughters and a wife... It doesn't make you a good man. How you treat women and children makes you a good man. But just the sole fact of you being in the presence of other females does not warrant bad behavior. <sighs> this person said, I saw your Instagram story about the mansplaining email you got and had to share this condescending, annoying email I received recently. I'm a strategy director for an advertising agency, so I often have salespeople reaching out on LinkedIn or via email to connect on a product they want our agency to use. I guess in an attempt to get my attention, this guy, who's a total stranger and got my tugboat and got my email from LinkedIn, decided to ask the below. Have you guys ever heard of a reverse sneeze? It's a real, it's a really interesting noise, but he's like a shih tzu, so it's brachiocephalic or whatever. Brach I don't know the words. Um, but he makes crazy noises. Anyway. Uh, so this guy's subject line, can you do a call this week? And this is a total stranger. He said, Hey, Molly, are you breaking up with me? Smiley face. Seriously, before you do, just wanted to follow up one last time. Would 30 to 40 appointments each month help your agency grow faster? Ron. And she said, Ron, I'm curious. Are you reaching out to your male contacts with are you breaking up with me? Question mark. Smiley face. I do not appreciate this kind of commentary. Remove me from your contact list immediately. <laughs> You're so right, though. At first, I was like, yeah, that's harmless. But like, no, why would he wouldn't say that? Uh, she said, there's so much about this that angered me. Why as a stranger do you think it's funny to make a comment about being in an intimate relationship with me? Why do you immediately need to connect a business connection to a sexual romantic kind of relationship? I don't know you and I highly doubt this is the way you attempt to get the connection of males in the smiley just now. Oh my God, I love you. Thank you. Anyway, guys, I don't want you to think like I talked for too long and then I'm cutting off people's emails. Um, but as far as I can tell, the other emails have these like long attachments that are really hard to articulate that I need to figure out. Uh, long story short, these are just a few, a handful of examples uh, of weird aggressions people experience in different formats. And please, for the love of God, uh, stand up for yourself, stand up for women that come after you. I understand we're not always in the 
a position of privilege to be selective and or deal with the repercussions, but also understand when you are right, you should not hesitate. When you are being spoken to in a particular way, maybe they can wreak havoc on your life in some way, but there also might be a lot of people that will come to your defense. And also we're in a climate right now that actually does favor corrective behavior and favors people getting put in their place. And is I think there's a way to be respectful and I think there's a way to be direct. And I don't think you have to do the like the clap back FU style. A lot of people will want you to do for like the almost cloud of being like, yes, queen. You know what I mean? Sometimes I think like even people with the email I said, they were like, you could have gone in. I'm like, no, I don't need to go in. I got across when I needed to get across. I that that's the thing is like you can match petty with petty or you can match petty with uh, meticulous professionalism that gets your point across so loud and clear without ever implicating you in any way of something you said or did that could be taken out of context. And that's what I think is important. It's not that like you're conceding by not being as mean or lame as they were. Rather, you their petulant questions are so ridiculous that your answers to them speak loudly to how absurd the questions were. And you can point out the tone and the unnecessary nature by almost literally responding in a way that's like to answer your question or to respond to your concern it makes them look ridiculous. I, I live, I live for a firm email response. I, I honestly, that talk about Frizen Friday, I live to put someone in their place in a way that they could never be mad at me because it's not catty or petty or needlessly rude. It's just simply pointing out how rude they were by being so literal in response. It's all, it's very exciting. Most, but again, there's many times you can't do that. I don't know. Everything's too nuanced for me to tell you how to live your life, what to do, how to be. But I just want you to know you are worth what you think you are. You are smart. You are strong. You are valuable. And one person's passing opinion should be no indicator of your opinion of yourself or your capabilities. When you are at work, the only metric that matters is how you execute against the work. And people bringing in other attributes are likely bringing them in for the wrong reasons to overcompensate for their shortcomings or to deliberately make you look bad because they aren't rising to your level. I'm so tempted to play Sierra Level Up, but you know I live for a YouTube mashup that's like, if I repurpose it, they're already repurposing music, so then it's not like me really repurposing music. It's actually me like promoting somebody's YouTube channel. <laughs> um, there's a YouTube channel. Mm, what is it? It is called Music Maestro Mashups. I've used them before. This one is weirdly back to December in Mad Woman. I quoted Mad Woman earlier, and I think Mad Woman's really powerful, as is My Tears Ricochet. And um, this Mad Woman back to December mashup is interesting because I would not put these songs together, and they have two different set sentiments, but it doesn't take away from the meaningfulness of the melody and the importance of the words in Mad Woman, which I think are illustrated really beautifully in this bridge. Uh... It's kind of a funny thing, too, of like, so, I don't know, sometimes I'll get feedback, like, you always make it about, like, feminism, you always make it about men and women, like, not all men, so on and so forth. It always, you know, bringing it back to gender. But here's the thing, you guys, is these things are so subtle that they're easy, so easy to deny and easy to accuse somebody like me of overstating, being hyperbolic, 
of being exaggerative when actually my goal is to highlight their consistent prevalence because it's normalized, because we are just taught that we need to accommodate people's egos. We need to stroke their worries and make them feel better, that we need to respond in a way that panders to their problematic behavior. And I'm here to tell you, you don't need to do that. And until people talk to women, especially young women, especially women of color, any if you feel like people are speaking to you in a way that isn't equitable to your experience, to your role, to what the scope of your job is, until the derogatory behavior stops, just like Taylor Swift goes back to December all the time, I will go back to my gender all the time and stand up for women who are unfairly told to sit down. I love you. Thank you for listening. I hope this wasn't boring. <laughs> I don't even know if it's, this is this episode was a journey and one I kind of um, planned kind of last minute. And I I sometimes I produce these episode more than episodes more than others. But I really just kind of talked through this one straight. Anyway, you guys, um, I love you. We have some fun guests coming up and things uh, that I think you'll really like. And I can't I guess I won't tell you more until they happen so I can manage expectations. And. Follow me at be there in five on Instagram. If you liked this episode, it like mean a lot to me. If you could share it with a friend on your stories or whatever you feel comfortable with. And uh, you can always reach me podcast to be there in five.com. There's a Kate Lila, an episode where I answer listener voicemails coming up 312-379-9676. And if you rate and review five stars, that's the only way I get on the charts is new subscribers and or new iTunes reviews pretty specifically. So if you feel so inclined to give five stars to write a review, it means a lot to me. Those That's like the only avenue of feedback I have that I genuinely do read. And I sit here and drink wine and cry as you guys tell me you feel like my best friend and I feel like yours. And it means a lot to me. Uh, beyond that, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash be there in five for over 100 episodes of bonus content in the cliffhanger I left you with of Kira, the ex-Mormon listener I was talking to. Part two will be posted soon. Hope, I mean, over the weekend at some point, as long as like, as soon as I finish it. And there's a PowerPoint party this Sunday that you don't want to miss that you will be able to join if you are uh, a part of Patreon as well. And I post the link on Sunday. Anyway, you guys, I love you. Thank you for... I don't know, always being interested in engaging and caring despite the randomness of my topics. I love that you embrace me going in on more uh, feminist agendas. But, you know, just as T. Swift said, there's nothing like a mad woman. I guarantee you, you work your ass off constantly and you are filled with emotional intelligence and social graces and you prioritize being a, a cooperative person to work with because you care about other people and you read their energy and you generally want to make your workplace a positive environment. I think most of us do. I'm, not, I'm never suggesting to just completely steamroll, blaze through, ignore any and all social graces and pleasantries in favor of, of unbridled anger. Uh, what I mean is when you find yourself in those positions where you are mad, where you are beside yourself, I'm going to bet it's the exception and not the rule. I'm going to bet that you are having a gut reaction to something that is strong and people around you might not be understanding or recognizing what's the, what the problem with it is. And I want you to channel the mad woman of it all, because I think for a lot of us, my, speaking from experience, 
I'm usually not very mad, actually. I'm usually always going to lobby for peace and avoid conflict at all costs. But when something really gets me, like this Fred email did, and I have the opportunity to stand up for other women, if not only for myself, I have to remember. It doesn't matter if no one likes a mad woman. Because you are not good at your job because you're likable. You're good at your job because you're good at your job. Period. End of story. As always, let me know your thoughts, and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Standing in front of you saying I'm sorry for that night